This place is special. Get asked all the time, where's your favorite place to take college game day? And I say every time, Eugene, Oregon. Yes. This is the best crowd. Honestly, it's six in the morning here. Yeah. It's dark. It's raining. They don't care. These fans right here, pound for pound, are as good as any college football fans in the country. This program is staged to compete and to win championships. Oregon is going to be in the championship game. Can you believe the magical season this has become? When we watch this film, does our effort beat theirs? Here's Bo Nix. Guns been making deposits. Time to cash the check. Sound at Austin, which is deafening for an Oregon 15-point win. Chip Kelly still does not have a win against his former school, and we say farewell. Man, it feels great to be a duck. Welcome to the QB11 Show, presented by Scoop Duck, with Doug, Andrew, and J-Hop. Here are the guys with the latest scoop. Welcome back to the QB11 show presented by Scoop Duck. I am Doug Scott, your host as always. Uh, QB11 is off tonight, but I do have an exciting special guest I'm excited to talk to and bring to you all. So that is Kelly Ford from thelines.com. He's joining us today. Kelly, thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, Doug, I appreciate the invite. The 2023 college football season is officially just around the corner. We've got week zero games this weekend, so it's the best time of year. I'm really excited, and I'm happy to be joining you here on on QB11 and uh, looking forward to talking some national college football and, of course, diving into the Oregon Ducks for sure. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, uh, yeah, week zero was, what, uh, three days away now? So we got college football on Saturday, and uh, QB and I were just talking about this on our episode earlier this week about how fun it's going to be to get up in the morning knowing you got football on that day and planning plenty. I, I don't care if it's going to be a 50, 50 point blowout. I'm watching a hundred percent. I keep saying beggars can't be choosers. And I've been begging for college football for almost eight months now, since we last saw a, a, a game between TCU and Georgia in the national championship. I'm going to be watching every single one of these. I don't care who it is. It's going to be on. The only one I won't be watching, actually, uh, which, Doug, is probably a, you, you probably won't like, but it's the unfortunate reality. I actually can't watch live uh, the USC-San Jose State game because it's on, it's on the Pac-12 network. You and most and, of the country. <laughs> I know. I, I, I live in Indiana, and uh, I haven't been able to get access to that network. Uh, it kills me because I really love what the Pac-12's got going on, and I wish so badly that the distribution of that network was better. Of course, it's a it's a short-term problem now, given the, the future of the conference yeah. and all those things. But um, that's the only one that I won't be able to watch, and I'm bummed about it because, of course, I'm excited about Caleb Williams and USC. Also probably not popular things to say on this show, but uh, that's the nah. reality. Those, those, that should be a good team, and he's a great player. So um, it'll be a fun Pac-12 race, and I'm bummed I'll miss that one. But all the other ones, yes, I'll be tuned in and ready to go. Uh, real college football, man. There's nothing like it. Let's go. I can't wait. Yeah, well, we'll get into the Pac-12 uh, race later in the show. That's definitely going to be one of the things we want to focus on with you. You know, I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about, I mean, our listeners know, you know, that QB and I are both kind of big analytics guys. Uh, you know, in football, we love looking at FEI, you know, uh, SP+, plus, SF+, plus, right? All the different ratings and ranking systems, you know, we're big believers in that. We talk about it a lot. Um, I actually came across you on Twitter probably some point last season, and I don't know how long you've been doing this, and we'll we'll find out. But I was I was glad I found you on Twitter, and and if our listeners haven't, they need to go follow you at, at Kford 
ratings on Twitter and, and also you have a website, kfordratings.com. And as you mentioned, uh, the lines.com as well, you do work for them. So, you know, one of the things I love and I, about what you do and what a, what a few others in the football analytics space do is the way that you bring what is obviously a lot of very sophisticated modeling and math and algorithms and models, if you will, but you, the way you present them on Twitter, particularly and on your website is, is in a very approachable way to, to the average football fan. It really kind of takes all that mystery noise, pushes it to the background. We're not staring at spreadsheets. You make really nice, colorful, um, uh, effective charts uh, that people can look at and look at their team, the conference their team is in around the country and, and glean the findings of the model without having to like sort spreadsheets and, and understand, uh, you know, all the math behind it. And so I think that's, it's a really approachable way. And I love that you do that. Um, and, and, and so I want to talk a little bit about a lot of the stuff you've put out uh, as we head into this, uh, this season. But before we get to that, I'd love to hear a little bit more of, you know, kind of what brought you, how long have you been doing this? What brought you into it? How did you get started? Kind of tell us a little bit about your journey and in, in becoming, you know, one of the, one of the best followers on Twitter when it comes to college football analytics. Yeah, well, Doug, I really appreciate it. Um, super kind words. I'm not sure they're all deserved, but I do appreciate uh, those remarks. And uh, I've been doing it publicly. Um, I joined Twitter in 2019. I, that's when I made the website as well. And so I, I've been producing power ratings and resume rankings for college football, FBS college football teams since 2019 on the public platform. You mentioned Bill Connolly and Brian Fromo, SP Plus, uh, FEI, and their combined metric F Plus. Uh, those are the two godfathers of college football analytics, in my opinion. And I say frequently whenever asked, you know, how'd you get started? It started for me, uh, geez, back in, you know, 2007, 2008, when Bill and Brian started doing their work and I started, you know, following them, not on social media because I didn't have it, but following their work online. Anytime they would post an article or post updated ra ratings or rankings, or, you know, they do an interview, a, a, a video, whatever it was, if Bill and Brian were talking, I was listening. I've always, you know, kind of, I've always loved college football. It's always been my favorite sport for as long as I can remember. I don't even know why it became my favorite sport, but I know the 2007 season cemented it as such forever. Um, and it will never be uh, otherwise. And I've also had an, always had a knack for numbers. So my undergrad degree, I went to Purdue university, my undergrad degrees in mechanical engineering. And, um, I've always just, you know, maths come easy, sciences come easy. And, I thought the way that Bill and Brian approached college football and viewed college football teams, games, conference races, uh, national national championship races, I always thought that was interesting. And I always kind of followed along. And eventually I decided, you know what, Bill and Brian, they're great and, and they're the best at it. I'm going to try my hand at this and I'm going to see what I can do and try to create my own model and generate my own numbers and just see what happens. And so it started as a hobby. Um, it's turning into, it's still a hobby, but it's turning into some, some more significant things now, which has been, which has been fun for me. And I've enjoyed, you know, growing the brand of K Ford ratings and kind of growing into the space uh, on, on social media as, you know, just one of the metrics that's out there in college football with power ratings and resume rankings. So it's been a lot of fun. Uh, that's how it started. That's why it started. My numbers um, look very, very similar, I would say, um, under the hood with my model as, you know, Bill and Brian, I, I basically built when I started out my model, I was trying to replicate what they were doing since they're the best in the business. Now, as I've gone along, 
I have, you know, learned my own lessons. I've, I've seen my own things in the data and run down my own paths, if you will, um, have my own kind of secret sauce in there now. Now that I have my own data set, I can do all sorts of back testing in the summers and I'm tweaking my, my input, the, the weighting of my inputs and trying to figure out what leads to the most predictable numbers, the most accurate and predictable numbers uh, in, the, in the power rating model, which is facing forward, trying to, to predict which teams are better than, than which on a neutral field in any given week. So um, it's been a learning process. It's been a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. And yeah, I, I like putting out the graphics on social media and on the website because what I learned, like you said, is not everybody has the interest um, in the, the the deep numbers, the deep math, like maybe I do. So if I want to try to reach the most people and be relatable to the most college football fans, which is what I'm going for, um, I need to present it in a way that can be understood by everybody, um, or at least try to be understood by everybody. There's still people that you know get mad because they either disagree or still don't understand. And I try to answer those questions, but some people are just trolling, and you know you let those go and, and move on. But yeah, I enjoy presenting it the way I do. It seems to be fairly straightforward for most. And uh, you might not always agree with the numbers, but what I kind of say is the numbers are the numbers, whether you like them or not. There's no subject sub subjectivity. There's no bias built in. It's just what the objective data says. And that's kind of where I let uh, I, I let the, the numbers take me to where they will. And then I, I draw my own conclusions as a college football fan from that. But the numbers are the numbers and we don't mess with those. Um, each individual viewer and fan can take a look at them and decide what to make of it for themselves. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, what I always say to people about about analytical models is they they all have a bias, right? Like the, just because it's it's being done by computers and it's a model doesn't mean it doesn't have biases. It does. Everything's biased toward how you weight the algorithm, right? Like what are the inputs you use? How would you weight them relative to the other inputs and and but the bias is always consistent, right? It, it's not a bias toward a school or a bias toward a conference or or a change week to week, right? You have the same model week to week. So if if, if a, any particular model favors uh, recruiting rankings over, you know, historical play or vice versa or whatever other the inputs are, it's consistent in that bias, uh, which I think is, is the part that you're looking for in a model. It's not that they're bias-free, it's that their biases are consistent. But also the second part is it allows and a good, any good, any good person doing what you're doing is always going to review their model and adjust their model based on find based on actuals, right? So you have a model, it's predictive, and then you get over time, you gather data and you use that data to say, okay, here's how we make the model better, more accurate, smarter, more predictive. And it sounds like that's what you do. Yeah, no doubt. That's what uh, that's what, that's what the majority of summer spent on two things. The summer is spent on trying to keep track of where are all the players in college football? Are they coming back to the team for which they played last year? Are they going in the transfer portal? And if so, where are they coming out? Are they still playing college football? You know, we have the extra COVID year now that's still still lurking around for another year or two. The one time free transfer. Uh, are they going pro? Are they staying? There are so many things that we're trying to track and there's really not a good one centralized database for that. I pull information from lots of different places to try to track that. But the other thing that I'm doing in the summer that takes a ton of time is what you just said. You're taking the updated data that you have and adding it to your data set. So every single college football season gives us one more full year's worth of data, right? And as someone who's starting out, you know, still within the first five years of going public with it, each year is, is still a significant add to my data set. You know, Bill and Brian, who have been doing it since 2007, 2008, each year for them, they're they're adding the data, yes, but it's having a, a lesser impact on their model, on their approach, because they have more in the database already, right? So 
yes, I'm adding in the new data. Now I'm taking that data back testing with the current model and the current weights and inputs, as you said, yes, I suppose you're right. They, anytime you have human interaction with a model, which every model would, because otherwise, how does it get going? Um, you do have, as you said, a bias. It is how can we use the back testing and how can we use the data that we have to then project forward and, and make the best predictive, most accurate predictive model we can, and I guess minimize that bias or, or, or make the impact of that bias as little as possible in any given week. And then to your point, yes, it remains the same in every week during the season. Certainly not, not tweaking the model, the, the weights or the inputs during the season. That's what the, that's what the summer is for. Um, and I will say, you know, in the last couple of years, it, it hasn't been a model overhaul. That's for sure. The 2020 data, yeah. you know, threw us all through us all for a loop. I think we've all kind of realized uh, it's better maybe just to almost toss it all out. You can, there's still some lessons in there, but it was just such a weird year with all the COVID disruptions and not a lot of non-conference play for inter interconnectivity within the data set. So that year excluded, I have not made a ton of changes to like the core of the model, the heart of the model. I'm tweaking things here and there, trying to, trying to make it better, but you're not improving it by a ton. You're, you're making it a little better here. And oftentimes, Doug, and you probably um, come to this conclusion too, in your job with analytics, as you said, too, it's not always like, oh, I'm going to make this change and now it's all good. It's it's always a trade-off. It's, hey, I'm going to make this change and it actually improved the predictability by half a percent in this area, but I lost three tenths of a percent in this area. So I'm going to go ahead and do it because I'm, I'm plus 0.2% on a net here aggregate. But nothing about the model. It's all give and take. It's all yep. positive here, negative there. And that's sometimes what people don't understand either. They say, well, why can't you just change that? Or why don't you just do that? And you have to, you have to kind of step back and say, well, if I do this, then this happens and then it affects this. And then it goes to that. It all cascades on itself. And so um, it, it, it is, you know, behind the scenes, it is a pretty complex, pretty in-depth uh, approach. I boil that all down to the numbers that you see on the website or on Twitter, and it's certainly much more digestible. And honestly, that's that's what you want to talk about anyway. I don't I don't want to talk about all the spreadsheets and all the models and how everything's all linked. <laughs> I want to talk about hey, I got you know Georgia power rated twenty eight point nine points above FBS average. That's number one. Oregon's at fourteen point seven. That's number thirteen, and they're right ahead of Oklahoma and right behind Notre Dame. Like you want to talk about that stuff, right? So um, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, one of the things I always tell people when they when they because a lot of people like to like question models and analytics or, or, or when the, when a, when a prediction doesn't turn out to be true, they're like, Oh, see, see, that was wrong. And it's like, well, it wasn't, it wasn't wrong because it never said this is a hundred percent what's going to happen. It said the probabilities are, this is what is more likely to happen. Right. Or it's 72% probable that this will happen. Like, and that's, I think that some of the, some of the critics of analytics don't really understand or else choose to purposely ignore uh, to try to make a point. And that's one of the things I actually love about the way you present a lot of your data, particularly team by team uh, schedules or, you know, kind of one pagers, if you will, is the way you put them in, in the in the standpoint of percentages. The same thing with your conference standings ones. And we'll talk about those because I think that really helps um, users visualize. It's like we're not saying that this team is definitely nine and three. We're saying there's 78 percent chance they're going to win nine or more games. And there's a 52% chance are going to win 10 or more games. Well, that's a pretty, that's a, that's a dividing line that is, becomes pretty clear when you look at it. 
Let me tell you my favorite one, Doug, just a quick example and just making an example here. But, you know, I put out my CFP contender graphic and it lists, you know, the top 30 teams that have the best chance to make the CFP from Georgia, number one, with a 70 percent chance to Oklahoma State at number 30 with a 0.9 percent chance, less than a 1 percent chance. Texas, of course, is one that always draws the ire of many people. <laughs> Texas fans will love it and everybody else in the country hates it. So Texas is number seven on that list for me right now. They have a 16 percent chance to make the CFP. And people love to freak out and say, you have Texas as the seventh favorite to make the CFP. That's ridiculous. They're always overrated. It's the same thing every year. I'm tired of hearing this. And they go on and on and on. And I let them talk and I let them yell and I let them scream. And then I say, yep, I do. I have Texas, you know, with the seventh best odds to make the college ball playoff right now by my numbers. And at the same time, guys, I have an 84% chance that Texas does not make the CFP. Like, that's how I like to flip it around sometimes, yeah. especially when the, the percentage is under 50. Like, hey. You know, USC, there you go, Pac-12 rival, 25% chance to make the CFP. You know, that's fifth, fifth in the country. I'm also telling you there's a three and four chance that my numbers don't think USC makes the CFP. So, you, like, I like to flip it around when it's under 50 because people like to get mad if they see a team. You know, they're number five on your list. There's no way. And I'm like, actually, you know, what? I kind of agree with you. It's pretty unlikely that they're going to make the CFP. But, guys, it's unlikely that everyone is going to make the CFP minus maybe a handful of teams. So it's a uh, that, that's probably my sport. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's my, that's, my, yeah. that's my favorite example, I guess. No, that's a good one. It, it, you know, you could look at it another way. If you ran seven iterations of the season, Texas mm -hmm. only makes the playoffs in one of the seven, roughly. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Spot on. All right. Well, let's get into it. Um, so I, I kind of just wanted to talk through some of your different uh, things you put out. You, you mentioned the first one. So let's start there. You've kind of got your what I'll call the power rankings, your powered rankings, your K Ford ratings, projected win totals. Uh, so he starts with number one, Georgia at 11.3. I, I actually have them predicted to go 12 and 0 against their schedule. But obviously, when you get into your models, the way you do it, every game has a percentage chance, right? You know, there, there are 98% mm -hmm. chance of winning that game, and there are 92% chance of winning that game. And then when you when you multiply all those together, you end, that's how you end up with 11.3 wins. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. So to your point there, Doug, I've got Georgia favored in every single game they're going to play. I favor the Bulldogs by 21 plus points, three plus touchdowns in eight of their 12 regular season games. I favor them by two to three scores, 14 to 21 points in three games. And that leaves just one game that I favor the Bulldogs by less than 14 points right now. That's a week 12 game at Tennessee. I favor Georgia by about 10 points. That's a 76% win probability. That's their lowest win probability of any single regular season game this year, 76%, so a 3-4 and four chance uh, to win that one. I have a 46% chance they go 12-0, and 0, which is, of course, the best in the country. Georgia's the best team. They do play a relatively easy schedule compared to some of these other contenders as well. Those Both things can be true simultaneously. I'm a firm believer. That's how you get to 11.3 wins on average. But yes, there's not going to be a single game all year that my numbers are saying, ooh, Georgia better be careful. They better watch out. They're going to be the heavy favorites in all of them. But as you multiply the individual game win expectancies together, that's how you get to that 11.3, as you said. And that is number one in the entire country by a whole half game. Ohio State's number two on that list at 10.8. Yeah, a couple points there. So going back over the last several years, has there been anyone higher than 11.3? Uh, no, uh, not since I've been doing this, um, you know, kind of with my current approach and doing it publicly and having the various kind of guardrails in place. Cause I do, here's a, here's a weakness of my model, Doug, that I, that I feel is true. My model, it, it, I, I think it's a, I think it's a good model. I have confidence in the model. I really like it. It has performed well with respect to other models, um, in the areas of, you know, absolute air and against the spread and all those other things that you kind of judge a model by. It does, it does well. 
I don't think my model is great or it has perfected the art of trying to capture just how good the best teams in the country are. It's kind of always searching for that top level or on the flip side, just how bad the worst teams in the country are. So if I'm looking, you know, at the worst power rated teams for me this year, you know, UMass, FIU, New Mexico, Sam Houston, mm-hmm. they're at the bottom. It's my model is always kind of searching for that floor too. You know, it's always trying to figure out, okay, just how bad is this team? And so, I've gotten better at trying to uh, tamper down those outlier um, results and, and, and really smooth out the edges of the model there. But no, to answer your question, since I've kind of had this and been able to back test prior years, preseason stuff with my current approach, this Georgia 11.3 is the most we've seen. And again, there's two reasons for that. Georgia is, by my numbers, the number one power rated team in the country, about half a point better than Ohio State per game on a neutral field. And Ohio State's my number two team in the country. But at the same time, Georgia has the number 54 most difficult schedule in the country. And there's there's reasons for that. Georgia yeah. had the Oklahoma they had the Oklahoma game canceled, of course, because Oklahoma's going to the SEC next year. So it was a home and home and the return got canceled. So they said cancel this one too. And they replaced it with with a team not Oklahoma. And then they play in the SEC East, which is the easier of the two divisions in the SEC. They can't play themselves, which is of course the best team in the SEC East. So everyone else in the East is getting that bump. They are not. And then out of the West, you know, they catch Auburn, who, who's a good team. They have them power rated 29. Um, and they catch Ole Miss, who you know, power rated eight team, but they're not getting LSU. They're not getting Alabama, like the top team from the West. And then, of course, they always get Georgia Tech. And I love rivalry games as much as the next guy. I'm glad they play this game, but Georgia Tech's not helping you in a schedule difficulty metric, and they haven't for a while. So that's why when you're looking at Georgia's schedule, it comes out where it is. Um, but hey, this is a really good team. Don't let the schedule fool you into thinking otherwise. They could play yeah. other teams' schedules, and they would they would be projected to win most of those games too. Yeah, and you've put out some some good graphics on that as well as that conversation kind of stirred up a month or so ago. So I'll let people go find those on uh, on Twitter or on your website because I think there's some good stuff there. Uh, yeah, just kind of moving on through the rest of the top 10. You know, you've got, obviously, you said Ohio State at 2 at 10.8, Michigan at 4 with 10.3. I'm sure you've gotten some fans of Michigan online saying, <laughs> wait a minute, what? We've won that game two years in a row. Why is Ohio State ranked higher? Yeah, uh, without a doubt, I get that. Yes, Ohio State. I, I have them power rated higher than Michigan. They have a higher average win total. I actually favor the Buckeyes in that game. It's at Michigan. I know. I, I got the Buckeyes favored in that game by about three. I think the consensus Vegas line right now is Michigan minus one. So I'm about four points off from. Yeah. Oh, it's a pick them now. Okay. So it's come no, down. No, no, so I'm just saying like a minus oh, one's rough. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, Especially yes, to consider I mean, home. If you're a minus one at home, that's basically means you're a two point dog on a neutral field, cor- right? Yeah. Correct. I- exactly. So I mean, I think Vegas thinks. Ohio State's a better team too, but you know, we, we do have uh, the home field advantage there. We do have the recent history. You know, Michigan's owned the Big Ten, and that includes Ohio State the last two years. Ohio State has three goals every year. They want to beat the team up north, as they say. They want to beat or they want to win the Big Ten and they want to win a national championship. Ohio State's over six in their goals the last two years. Michigan's won the Big Ten, Michigan's won the game, and Michigan has been in the CFP two straight years. So I'm not going to argue with any Michigan fan who says we're the kings of the Big Ten. We deserve to be ranked higher than Ohio State. I'll say, yes, you are the kings of the Big Ten. You deserve nothing this year because we haven't played any games. Um, But sure, if the AP poll wants to have them ahead of Ohio State, I understand why that's the case. But from a power rating standpoint, when you're looking at the inputs that we have in the preseason, you know, that's your returning production. That's your recent recruiting. That's your recent K-Ford ratings. Ohio State grades out better um, with the weights that I have in place on those things. And so we'll see. Things are going to change throughout the year. But uh, yeah, Michigan fans have certainly let me hear it. And I just kind of let them talk. And um, Michigan's proved me wrong each of the last two years because I've liked Ohio State in that game each of the last two years. And and I've been wrong. But to your point, 
just because the model is wrong on a game, we, we can't draw all our conclusions from that. Yes, that's a part of it. And yes, we learn from that. But on average, on the aggregate, the, mo- the model gets it right more than it gets it wrong. It just so happened the last two years, that's a really high profile game. It's gotten it wrong. So um, yeah, that, that's been something that's been you know, interesting on Twitter for sure. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the the Pac-10 team or the Pac-12 teams on this list. But first, real quick, let's just put a bow on, you know, Clemson at six, Penn State, Texas, seven, eight. LSU 9, Florida State 10. I, I don't really see, I mean, all that lines up pretty well. I think LSU is a lot higher in the AP poll. I actually think LSU is probably a better team than 9, but I can understand why the model, you know, sometimes your models will trail, right? Just because of the way well, when teams have massive turnarounds. Yeah, for sure. And, and I'll say I, I have LSU as better than the ninth best team in the country. I actually have LSU power rated number five. We're looking at the projected win totals where they come out number nine. That's gotcha, because their schedule, schedule, their, their, their schedule yep. yeah, their, their schedule is more difficult. But if you're looking at the power ratings, LSU is actually number five. So uh, behind only Georgia, Ohio State, Alabama and Michigan. So I, I absolutely agree that they're better than the ninth power rated team. But when you incorporate their schedule, which of course is very difficult, that's how they end up where they do um, again by multiplying probabilities. Cause there's actually only one game on LSU schedule all year in which I'm making the tigers an underdog. And that's when they have to go on the road to Alabama in week 10. So I'm favoring LSU in 11 of their 12 games, but multiplying those win probabilities together, that's how you get the 9.4. Gotcha. My bad there. I missed that. And that's also why you see USC at five here. Um, in your win totals, but non eighth in your power rankings because again, Pac-12 schedules generally easier than some of those other teams. So, exactly totally makes sense. Uh, yeah, kind of going through Pac-12 real quick. Um, I don't. Again, we'll talk more in depth on the Pac-12 later, but I did want to. You've got USC at eighth, um, Oregon at thirteenth, Utah at fifteenth, Washington at seventeenth. Um, obviously, all the human polls have Utah and Washington ahead of Oregon. Um, Washington is definitely one of those teams that seems to have the the biggest variance between what we see in human polling and what we see in not just your model, but all the models I've looked at have Washington more in that 17 to 18, 19 range, uh, whereas the human polls all have them in kind of like 8, 9, 10 range. Can you talk a little yeah, bit about that? Yeah, for sure. There's a couple of reasons for that for me. As you mentioned, I do have Washington power rated 17. That's the fourth best power rating in the Pac-12 behind USC, Oregon, and Utah, as you said. For me, or for Washington, it starts from last year. So Washington last year won 10 regular season games. That was 2.7 more regular season games than I projected for the Huskies last preseason. So Washington finished last year as the 11th best or biggest overachievers in an all of FBS, winning 2.7 more games than I expected. That was the 11th best plus number in that metric last year for me. Um, so I think that plays a role in the uh, the AP polls mind. Hey, you know, a regression this, this to team, a mean a little bit. Of the well, ratings. Yeah, this team was really good last year. And for me, it's actually it's it's not quite as much regression to the mean as just maybe not much progression as others are expecting them to take coming off what was undoubtedly a really good season for them, especially in the win loss record. But yep. last year, Washington, Washington finished last year for me power rated number 20 there, even though they had 10 regular season wins, they were still power oh, they didn't rated number play 20. Utah or USC. we're speaking the same language here, Doug, you're you're a step ahead of me on this. Totally. That's exactly where I was going this year. I have them power rated 17 coming in. So I have them as a significantly better team. When you're looking at their K forward rating, actually, they're a better team this year, not just by ranking, but rating as well. This offense is really good. It's the number seven power rated offense for me. I'm really excited about Penix jr. Of course, Helen DeBoer is, is a great coach and has been a really good coach. And I'm excited for what he can bring uh, to Washington this year, the final year in the PAC 12 before, of course, Washington and your ducks make their way to the Big Ten, 
the issue for me here is this defense is still unproven. I, I have this defense power rated number 50 d- defensive unit in the country. That's just the sixth best in the Pac-12. This is a mid-table Pac-12 defense for me. Um, and then if you look at the schedule, what I really love, and I know we're going to get into it more, I love that these four teams play around Robin this year. Yes. I mean, USC, Oregon, Washington, Utah, all playing each other. Oh my gosh, I, I am so pumped for that. It's not even funny. If when you look at Washington's schedule though this year, that was a weird way to say Washington, I'm sorry. When you look at Washington's schedule this year, they're only underdogs in one game. So USC is an underdog in no games by my numbers. Oregon's an underdog in three games, but it's all by a field goal or less. So I know we'll come back to that. Washington's only an underdog in one game and Utah's an underdog in two. The one game Washington's a dog in for me, week 10 at USC by about eight points. But there's so many close games. I have a pick them against Oregon. I have them favored by one against Utah, one against Oregon State. It's going to be so much fun when you aggregate all, when you multiply together all those expected win probabilities. That's how you get to the 8.5 expected wins, 27% chance to go nine and three. That's the most likely record for them by my numbers, a 51% chance to win nine plus games. So I'm basically saying it's 50-50 that they could win nine or more, or they're going to win eight or fewer. Like that's the cutoff line for me there um, for Washington this year. And so I get why the AP has them where they do because of how great they were last year in terms of, especially relative to their expectations. My numbers just aren't quite sold on this defense yet. If the defense overperforms and plays up to, you know, a top 30 or a top 20 level, watch out Pac-12 because Washington's going to be really good. This offense is no joke. But the the defense, I just have to see it a little bit to believe it. Let's uh, let's come back to the Pac-12 later in the show. I definitely want to dig in deeper on particularly those four teams as well as a couple more in the conference. But, uh, you know, one of the other things you put out recently that I, that I really thought was was fun and interesting and, and something I hadn't seen before is, you know, more wins, uh, more more projected wins this coming season than than teams achieved in the previous year and kind of ranking which teams are expected to win. Like kind of like you said about Washington last year, winning two, two, 2.7 more than your model which teams are projected to win more than their model or more this year in the model than they won last year. And conversely, which teams are projected to lose more games uh, than, than last year. So at the more wins category, you've got uh, USF at the top with 3.7. Is that still the most uh, correct numbers? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, the numbers that are up there on the website, I think it posted on Twitter today or yesterday. Those are the updated numbers. So what you're looking at is the finalized preseason. And yes, this this is such a fun metric to look at, trying to calibrate, right? You know, who's going to bounce back? Who's going to re- regress back to the mean, if you will? And so in the top 10 of my teams projected to win more games in 2023 based on preseason numbers compared to their 2022 actuals in the top 10 you've got four really big brands you got oklahoma number three i expect them to win 3.1 games more this year than last year so last year they won six on the regular season this year i'm projecting 9.1 so that's how you can kind of read this wisconsin 2.8 more than last year texas a&m 2.7 more than last year and miami who was my biggest underachiever in 2022. If I look at Miami, I projected last preseason 8.8 wins for the Hurricanes. They only won five in the regular season. That negative 3.8 was the largest negative differential in the country. My biggest underachievers last year were Miami. They come in at number 10 on this list. I expect them to win 2.3 more games this year than last. Last year, they got five. I'm projecting 7.3 for them this year. So yeah, that's how you read that graphic. That's how you uh, can interpret it. It's just a fun thing for that. I think it's a fun thing to look at, Um, you know, Hey, last year was disappointing for us. What does K4 ratings think about our bounce back this year? Or in the case of Washington, hey, last year was really good for us. What's K4 thinking? Well, I've got on the fewer wins in 2023, Washington comes in number 15. 
projecting 1.5 fewer wins. Like I said, they won 10 last year in the regular season. I'm projecting 8.5 this year. So that's how you get to that number. Yeah. And, it, and the funny thing about the, or the, the kind of intuitive thing about the more wins category, right. In those, those four you mentioned, right. I mean, it, they're pretty clearly like Oklahoma pretty clearly under underperformed last year, mm-hmm. Texas A&M clearly underperformed Miami clearly underperformed. So when you have a significant underperformance, you would expect to see those teams on this kind of list because they did underperform their talent, their baseline, um, you know, expectation. And so unless there's going to be a, a, a considerable drop off or a disastrous pattern, they're of course going to bounce back and, and be toward the top of this list. And, and it makes a lot of sense that those four are there. And I, I would be totally uh, expect that to happen to, to some degree for all four of those teams myself. Yep. No doubt. It's exactly right. Uh, so the, the big one on the fewer wins TCU, uh, you know, played in the national title game one, what, 12 regular season games last year, and you've got them projected to win, what, uh, 7.9 this year? Yeah, TCU, and I know TCU fans aren't going to like it, but, I mean, they can't be that surprised, right? Last year was a phenomenal year for Sonny Dykes in year one there in Fort Worth. It was such a fun story. You know, they win 12 regular season games, 12-0 and on their way to a Big 12 championship game appearance. I think people forget, TCU actually did not win the Big 12 last year. That was Kansas State, even though TCU made the CFP, as my most deserving ranking suggested they should have as the number three seed. I think the committee got that exactly right. I projected uh, 6.4 regular season wins for TCU last year. They win 12. That's 5.6 more than expected. They nearly doubled what I expected. That's unheard of. That's that's insane. It was such a good year. They were my number one biggest overachievers by a significant margin. That is part of the reason why they are now number one on my expected to win fewer in 2023. They won 12 last year, minus 4.1 on the graphic. As you can do the math there, as you said, it's a 7.9 is what I'm expecting this year. Cincinnati's number two on that list. Purdue's number three. South Alabama four and South Carolina fans hate me. They're number five. Uh, they, but, they think my model's biased against their team. And, you know, it's, it's the way it is. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of the top five of teams I expect to win fewer games by my preseason numbers in 2023 than their actual regular season win total in 2022. Uh, let's talk about Cincinnati real quick for a second, because there's two, two different factors maybe playing in there. Luke Fickle, obviously leaving to take the job at mm-hmm. Wisconsin, but also them moving from, uh, you know, the American uh, up to the big 12 conference. So kind of how much of, how much of this do you see as each one of those things it's, or potentially uh, it, other it's, things? Yeah, those things are definitely the two biggest factors. You've got coaching turnover, which is going to increase uncertainty, which is going to temper expectations by the model and and by the general public. With that, usually comes roster turnover as well. Um, We haven't had that to to, to as big a degree as maybe you see some other times, but they're certainly not bringing back the most returning production we've ever seen from a Cincinnati team. I mean, Cincinnati's coming off of, you know, a couple years here in 2020 and 2021, especially. These are some of the best Cincinnati teams we've ever seen in program history, and they a little step back last year from what we've seen in the previous two and now i'm projecting another step back this year but you're right also moving to the big 12 that just makes your schedule that much more difficult now for cincinnati let's be fair they actually have still one of the easier power five conferences and or uh, schedules in the country i have their uh schedule with the 63rd most difficult we have 69 power five teams so it's 63rd most difficult so among the easiest power five it's the second easiest schedule in the big 12 that's looking at conference and non-conference games only oklahoma state has an easier schedule this year than cincinnati by my numbers in the big 12 um the defense is going to be legit you know top 25 the offense i have big concerns about they're sitting number 76 right now so we will see um about cincinnati but yes 
success. For all those reasons, that's why we're projecting them to win fewer games this year. And it's not like this is a team. It's not like they overachieved last year. They actually underachieved by half a game. I projected 9.5. They got to nine. So this is a team that underachieved last year. And now I'm still projecting a big step back for those reasons you just mentioned that I, that I went into. A couple other ones on this list to note, and I caught my eye, Michigan, uh, you know, 1.7 decline expected this year. Obviously, they won 11 last year in the regular season. 12, uh, 12. 12. Oh, they went 12 and 0. You're right. So there you yeah, go. So yeah. that's part of it, right? So I'm still projecting 10.3. So yeah, Michigan fans, don't get mad. I'm, I'm projecting 10.3. <laughs> Which is right at their 10 and a half over under on the season. Ex- so. ex- yeah, exactly. It's just when you win so many games last year, Guys, you have no choice but to regress. They're like you either stay the same or you come back, and no model is going to project you to go twelve and zero. So you're going to end up on these lists if you've gone twelve and zero last year. TCU, Michigan, Georgia, who, who actually comes in uh, at number forty two. So they're not on the they're not on the first page, but they're on the second page. Yeah, and I'm not going to steal your thunder on this one, but I expect the answer you're going to give me on USC is very similar to what we talked about with Washington. They uh, they obviously went eleven and one last year. You have them projected at. Uh, what nine point eight this year? So a drop of one of one point two. Yeah, USC. It's very similar. Like I mentioned Washington was my number eleven overachiever last year. USC was number twelve, and I will, I will, I will take some uh, criticism, and, and it's fair. I did not, you know, last year we didn't have Lincoln Riley brought in so many transfers. There was so much turnover in that roster um, coming into last season as as he made his transition to be, to be the USC head coach. I was not sold. And I think there are other power ratings out there, other models that weren't sold. How are these pieces going to fit together? We kept hearing, you know, it's not a video game. You can't just plug and play these things. Well, USC kind of <laughs> proved that you can. At, at, at least, least on, on the offense. offense. The offensive side of the ball. The defense is still concerning. But that offense came together much better than I gave it credit for coming into the year. I think coming into the year, I had them power rated somewhere in the mid-20s. Um, they ended last year number 16 for me. So they did improve. But still, they went 11-1 and in the regular season. And Kelly, they only finished power rated 16. Like, how is that? You know, power five. Their only losses in the regular season were to, to Utah, a really good team. Like, why were they so low? The turnover luck for USC last year, and I'm sure I don't have to tell fans of this podcast or listeners of this this podcast, the turnover luck was just absolutely unreal. If they replicate that again this year, I will be so beyond shocked. It's not even funny. I'll just say, you know what? They're just a a lucky program, I guess, and they just get the bounces. I don't know. The turnover luck last year was out of this world. You cannot expect that again. So while I actually am projecting more regular season wins this year than I projected last year, I'm still not projecting USC to reach the same win total they did last year. I have a 30% chance that they reach 11 plus regular season wins, which is what they got last year. So, you know, three out of 10, you you play the season 10 times, three times they're going to get there seven times. I don't think they will, even though, as I, as I mentioned, I have USC favored in every single game. Now there's a pick them game at Notre Dame where I give them a 52% win expectancy. So that's why they fall on the, the quote projected to win side. Um, And then I got the Oregon game. They're only favored by one and a half. I got Utah as a one score game. Washington's only eight points. Um, So it's going to be tough. And I don't think USC is going to go undefeated. 7% chance of that. I wouldn't be surprised if USC lost two games. Um, I'm not going to say I think they're going to lose two conference games, although they might. I just can't pinpoint them right now. Um, But that's going to be such a fun round, Robin. They get Notre Dame in there, too. It's a tough schedule once you yeah. get to week seven. The first six weeks oh, is, yeah. is, is a cakewalk. They're, they're, those offensive numbers are going to be video game style, um, and it's going to be outlandish. But once they get to week seven, 
USC's in for it because they yeah. got Notre Dame, Utah, tricky trip to Cal, maybe Washington at Oregon, UCLA. That is, oh man, the second half of the and schedule. No buys in there either. No yeah. buys in there. You got that. They got a buy in week three and a buy in week thirteen. Which they're if they're going to make the Pac-12 championship, they're going to need that buy to get ready for that championship game because they're coming off of a brutal stretch there, about five five really tough games out of six. Yeah, and the other thing with USC, similar to Washington, is they they didn't play Washington or Oregon last year as well, So and they play them both totally. this year along with Utah. So that full round robin, again, is going to – I've been talking about that. QB and I have been talking about that all offseason as well and look really looking forward to that. You know, I think the two teams that – actually, we'll get into this later, so I'll, I'll just put a pin in that for now. Okay, let's take a quick break right here, and we will be back with more Kelly Ford. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, and welcome back. We've got Kelly Ford from thelines.com and K Ford Ratings. I'm going to skip past the power conference comparison. I did think that was really interesting to see how when you, uh, you know, when you kind of put all the teams in their new conferences for 2024 and you look at your kind of historical rankings or, or like five-year rolling rolling, uh, rolling rankings for all the programs. And I think out of the top 20, you end up with 16 of those being in the, the Big Ten or the SEC, you know, one in the ACC, one independent, and, or two in the ACC, one independent, and one in the Big 12 or something like that. So it shows you that we're kind of moving from this Power 5 era into this Power 2 era, if you will. Thoughts on yeah, that? no, uh, no doubt. You're exactly right. Um, yeah, that was a fun exercise that certainly got some fan bases going on on Twitter. But yeah, when you look at the conference, the numbers uh, are the numbers, though, Kelly. That's I mean, that's 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 what I come back to all the time. When you look at the conference uh, composition in 2024, you, you nailed it. I mean, let's talk about the Big Ten, because that's where your ducks are going. That's where your rival Huskies are going and, and USC and UCLA. Of course, you go down that list looking at my average power ratings for these programs in the CFP era. So since 2014, it's a good, it's a good uh, sample size now with that yeah. many years, Ohio state's number two, Wisconsin's actually number seven. People are going to say, man, Wisconsin, have they underachieved? You, you could argue Wisconsin's underachieved with the, the talent that they've had and the teams that they've had in terms of what they've actually won. Um, they've been a really good program in the big 10 though. You guys will, we'll get to see that firsthand here. Yeah, I, I'd actually argue, I actually wouldn't argue they've underachieved. I think Wisconsin has, is a team that has maximized their ceiling for that period of time. I, so, sorry, I, under, I, I shouldn't have used the term underachieved. The number seven is in the CFP era. That's great. I, I should say um, th- they haven't won maybe the trophies or the, the, the championships, whether that's in the Big Ten or nationally, that you might expect from a team that's number seven. Like, let's look at the other fair, teams that fair. are in, in, in the top yeah. seven. You got Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson. Uh, Oklahoma, who's dominated the Big 12, Georgia, then it's Wisconsin, or sorry, then it's Notre Dame, who's been to a couple CFPs, then it's Wisconsin, then it's LSU, who's won a national championship. So when you look at the other teams at the top, that's what I meant. No, certainly a program like Wisconsin being number seven, that should be applauded and celebrated. I agree with you. I think they've they've really maxed out and, and hit a ceiling. Um, Michigan's number 10. 
Penn State's number 11. Then you've got Oregon coming in at 15, USC 16, Washington 18, Iowa maybe a surprise for some is number 19. And then there's a little bit of a drop, Michigan State 31, UCLA 34, and you go on from there. But um, yeah, the Big Ten and the SEC, as you said, certainly trending towards that power too. Uh, I do think, you know, as long as the ACC and the, and the Big 12 have their current compositions moving forward or they or they add to it and, and they don't lose any of those top brands or programs. I still think it's a power four. Yes, there's there's the two biggest boys, but I still think it's a power four. Um, but yeah, there's no there's no debate that the top of the top is residing in two conferences starting in 2024. Yeah, but totally. And I think uh, you can look at recruiting rankings, right? The top big 12 school recruits around number 30 in the country of the new big 12. So yeah. I think that's where yeah. we're going to see how that plays out over the next five to seven years. Obviously, in the ACC, you have a little bit of a different situation because you got, uh, you know, Miami and Florida State and Clemson who all recruit really well. And and when they're, you know, obviously Miami and Florida State have been down. You know, maybe certainly Florida State seems to be coming back. Miami might be right behind them. Clemson's still there. So the, the that that conference at least has those three heavyweights at the top that I I don't think you see in the Big Twelve to the same level. Agreed. Yep, I, I agree with you there. Utah is projecting as the best Big Twelve program moving forward for me, based on the last you know ten years or so of, of power ratings, and they're number thirteen nationally. So uh, yes, I agree with you. Uh, the ACC certainly with Clemson, that's an established power in, in the CFP era, and Miami and Florida State will have as much potential as anybody, given their rich history and their fertile recruiting grounds in which they reside. Um, that's why you know those three programs in particular, uh, and UNC kind of tags along too into that conversation. That's why. They they are the most attractive to these other conferences and they're the teams you hear about during the realignment talks. All right, let's move on to another fun thing you've done recently projected game ratings. And you kind of put out a, a page of these for the season, the top 40 games for the season. And then you, and you kind of start, I think start doing it week by week. And we can talk about week, week zero and week one as well. Um, so your top game of the entire season shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Ohio state at Michigan and you have it as a 99. I assume a hundred is the maximum score. Kind of, what does that yeah. number mean? How do you get to that? Yeah, definitely. So what I've tried to do, and it's 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 art and science, like like anything that I'm doing, but I've really tried to marry two main components. Uh, so projected quality. So I'm looking at the average K Ford rating of the two teams involved. Of course, if you've got you know Ohio State and Michigan, those are two top four teams. That's going to be really good. Um, if you've got, you know, as I look here, maybe a sicko game that we could even have, you know, this week, you know, you know, we got UMass playing who's UMass playing this week here in week zero. Give me a second. You got UMass and New Mexico state. I mean, those are two teams in the bottom 10 of my power ratings that that's not going to score very high in that component, but it's not just about having the best teams because you could have Georgia and UMass, the number one and the number one thirty-one, And that would still come out as about a score of a 50, which is average. If you were if you were just looking at that because Georgia's so high and, and UMass being so low, you average them together, you're still at 50. Well, that's not a very good game. That's not the that's not a, you know better than half the games in college football, right? So what's the other piece? I'm looking at projected competitiveness. So I'm looking at my average or my projected K Ford spread. So when you have a game like Ohio State and Michigan, I mentioned it. You know, it's at Michigan. I have it as a three point game. It's so that's competitive, and you have really two really good teams. That's how you're going to get a really high rating. If you have Georgia and UMass, it's going to be an average uh, quality because the two teams average together there, but the competitiveness score is going to be like a zero because Georgia is going to be favored by a billion points. Sorry, not a billion. They're going to be favored by 23 plus 29. What is that? Uh, 52 points, 53 points, whatever it is. Yeah. That's what they're going to be. That's what they're going to be favored by in that game on a neutral field. So competitiveness, that's going to get dragged down. If you have the UMass and the New Mexico State, 
it's not going to have very good quality, but it's going to be competitive. So they're going to get a bump in there. So I've tried to, 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 to find the right mixture of those things and weight them appropriately, but that's what we're looking at. You're, you're, it's a weighted rating on a zero to hundred scale of the projected quality. So the average K4 rating of the team involves and the projected competitiveness, the projected K4 spread of the game. That's how we get to those numbers. As you mentioned, Ohio state and Michigan coming out with about a 99. I do need to update these numbers. This is the one thing on the website that hasn't been updated with my finalized preseason ratings, but they haven't changed much from the previous version. Yeah. Yeah, So, so I still feel comfortable talking about these and, and, and and speaking in general terms that these are still going to be the best games. That's the number one game for me. I'll tell you, there's a lot of pac 12 games on this list. Yeah. And it's gonna, it's gonna be fun. Yeah, and you know, so on this list, you listed the top forty games. The lowest score of the top forty is eighty-seven. So you can see those are all high-quality games. And I think it's it's a great little like primer for for people to print out and put next to your TV, uh, or or even just keep digitally. What games do you want to watch? And then obviously you do these week by week as well. So as you roll into a weekend, this should be like a real easy way to say. What are the games I want to keep on my uh, on one of my multiple TVs or laptop screens, or what do I want to make sure I'm ready to flip to that channel at any at a moment's notice? Because these are going to be probably the best games to watch in any given week. You know, you mentioned Pac-12. You know, Oregon shows up on here five times in your top 40, including number 10 overall game, which is the SC game, which I think makes a ton of sense. Um, obviously, the Utah and Washington games also in the top 20. Yeah, it, it, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun, and I'll give a little teaser here too. If you follow me on Twitter at K Ford Ratings, you'll get you'll get my watchability uh, graphic every single week. I actually just made the week zero one today. Um, I'll be posting it here. I don't know what day, but before Saturday, what I'm gonna do every single week, I'm gonna give you the top ten games by my game rating metric. I'll give you the top ten games in each window. So I'll give you the early window, oh. which I know for you, I, I know for you guys, nice. it's out. Uh, you know, at nine a.m. for us here on the East Coast, that's a noon game. But I'm gonna tell you. Who are the two teams playing? What's their projected game rating? And what what station is on? What channel is it on? Um, so I'm going to have all those things, one through 10, and I'm going to do it for all three windows, the early, the afternoon, and the prime time. And that's what I'm going to use as my, I have a, you know, I got a five TV set up in my basement. I'm, I'm going to use it. That's how I'm going to decide what games I'm looking at, what I'm watching and everything. So the week zero one, as you can imagine, we only have uh, seven FBS games, only one in the early window, what I'm calling it, one in the afternoon. And we got five in the prime time, though. So so it'll be it'll be a good teaser. And then, yes, I will post them on the website, too. But follow me on Twitter. You can keep up with those. Yeah. OK, the the Pac-12 back to that and these projected games. Utah actually shows up most of any team in the top 40. Utah shows up six times. Half of Utah's half of Utah's games by my numbers, Doug are top 35 games in the entire college football season. I've got the game at SC number 11. Uh, Oregon comes to town, and uh, I got that number 16. When Utah goes to Washington, it's number 20. Uh, at Oregon State, is 32. Florida coming to town is 34. And then when Utah goes to Baylor, it's 35. They're showing up everywhere. Your Oregon Ducks, you mentioned you have them at number 10. SC comes to town. You guys go to uh, Utah, and, and uh, that's number 16. You guys go to Washington. I have that number 18. And I've also got uh, you guys. This, this is a great game, and I'm so excited about it. I know you guys are too, but I don't think nationally it's getting the, hub, the pub that it should. I've got the week two game when you guys yeah. are going to Texas Tech. I got that number 30 overall. I cannot wait for that game. That's going to be so much fun. Um, I think it's going to it's a really underrated game. And then it might surprise some people, uh, maybe not your fans, um, but the, the Civil War. I got that one. Oregon State at Oregon. I got that number 37. And uh, your fans. It was I'm certainly say, a watchable game last year, although not right, like the way it ended. Right? Yeah. I, so here's the thing. I, my numbers right now favor Oregon in that game by about seven and a half. But uh, 
listen, it's a rivalry game. And I don't have to tell you guys, especially when you look, just look back to last year, they're going to be, the Beavers are going to be coming and it's going to be, I think there's going to be a little extra this year too. They're yeah. going to be coming to Eugene and they're going to be thinking, this is the last time we're going to play them. Well, I actually, I don't know what's been determined about non-conference matchups with them. I guess not you yet. would know better, but yeah, okay. This is the last time we're going to play them that we know of, and it's the last time it's going to be a conference game for who knows how long, maybe ever. They're going to have a massive chip on their shoulder. I fully expect Oregon to still be in the Pac-12 race, still be in the CFP race potentially. So there's going to be a ton on the line. There's going to be a lot of emotions. Um, the fact, of course, that it's in uh, in Eugene is going to going to give you guys a little bit more of an edge there. But uh, yeah, watch out for that one. That's going to be a fun one. I know you always circle your rivalry game, so nothing extra. But um, I think well, Oregon just State's so you know, the main rivalry game is actually Washington. But- but, no, uh, I, yeah, they're I, both I, they're both rivalry games for sure. Yeah, totally. No, I I I know you guys are you guys are. Uh, I love Oregon. This okay. This is anecdotal. I don't want to go too far down the road. But 2014 uh, NCAA 14. So I guess it came out 2013. Yeah, NCAA 14. Well, I am not. I'm not an Oregon fan. Doug. You, you, like I, I'm not like that's not my team. I, I have nothing against Oregon. That's not my team. I would. I played. I can't tell you how many dynasties. I don't know how many I started. I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of hours I spent playing NCAA 14 Dynasty mode. It was my favorite game. Still love it. I can't wait for the game to come out next year. Hopefully, it comes out on time. Anyway, I would start every dynasty with one of two teams. If I really wanted to start at the bottom, I'd start with Georgia State. They were the first year in the game. They had no history. I'd start with Georgia State, and I'd either build them all the way up, or I'd start there and then bounce around and, and find my. You know, I'd be at a Power Five school in just a couple of years because all I wanted to do was recruit. Or if I wanted to start with a great program who had never won a national championship, that was kind of my, my key indicator. I wanted <laughs> to bring it home to Oregon. I wanted to be in Oregon. So, oh my gosh, DeAnthony Thomas uh, was in there. I think Marcus Mariota was the quarterback, right? Like, I think he started the year number six in the, in the default year, if I remember right. Like, I would play with Oregon more than just about anybody else in that game. And I'm not an Oregon fan, but that was a fun offense to play with. And it was fun to recruit. And I love seeing when you get that commit, that, that uh, yellow O shows up. And man, <laughs> yes. So Oregon to me, where I was going with this, you guys are in a unique spot, um, maybe more so than, than some others out there where I, and I don't want to tell you guys your business, I really viewed through that game, Washington and Oregon State, I know they're not equal in your minds, but I viewed them as kind of equal rivals. You, you really have two main rivals in my mind. Again, I'm not telling yeah. you your business, yeah, yeah. not your team, but um, many teams out there, they got their one and that's it. And then there's others like Texas. And, and who, unless you're in the Big Ten West hates. and you have like all of them. <laughs> that's right. No, like you're 17 right. 17 trophy <laughs> games. I don't know. Ex exactly. They can't have too many in the Big Ten West. That's true. Hey, you can't make fun of the Big Ten much longer. You're about to be one of no, us over I'm here. I'm excited. So. <laughs> I'm excited to join it. Uh, let no, me move cool. on a little bit here. I, we're we're having a lot of fun, but man, this time's rolling by, and I want to make sure we have time to get to uh, the other topics I want to cover. Uh, maybe maybe we'll touch on the other four power conferences real quick, and then we'll jump into the Pac-12 in a little more in depth. I'm going to start with the Big 12. Um, you know, obviously Texas hasn't won the Big 12 in I don't know 15, 16, 17 years, something like that. They haven't even been in the Big 12 title game in a long time. Oklahoma was a mainstay there, missed it last year. But you have them as pretty heavy favorites to, as the two teams to make that title game, which, you know, I'll let you touch on that. But also the second thing I want to make here is looking at the rest of the lineup in the Big 12, what, what I'm seeing is what I think a lot of people are seeing is the new Big 12 post-Texas and Oklahoma is going to be a very deep and competitive league, uh, you know, top to middle. Uh, and I think that's something that I think is going to be really fun to watch over the coming years. 
without a doubt, I'll take the second one first. The new look Big 12, the current Big 12 is great. There's there's not a bad team. It's the only conference out there that the worst that every single team is power rated above FBS average for me. Houston's number 61, and that's the worst in the Big 12. They're the only conference that can say that. There is no bad team. They might lack some of the star power at the top or some of the elite teams, although I do think Texas will push that this year. Um, but they're really good already. They're really deep already. I agree. Moving forward, they're going to remain deep. They are adding maybe a couple teams that are going to drag down that average a little bit, but still going to be really deep league. For this year, I do like Texas and I do like Oklahoma. Texas has a 70% chance to make the Big 12 championship game by my numbers. Oklahoma has a 46. The model is high on those teams for reasons that um, that become apparent when you look at what the preseason inputs are. They both have generally, Texas especially, underachieved uh, in recent years. I think personally, while the model saying those are the two favorites, I personally think one of those two will make it and I'm leaning Texas. And I think the other spot will be taken by somebody in this next grouping of teams. I have Kansas State, TCU, and Texas Tech with an 18, 15, and 14% chance to make the title game, respectively. I think the other team will come out of that group. Uh, Baylor and UCF not to be slept on either, both with 11 and 10% chances, respectively, to make it. But to me, it's Texas or Oklahoma, most likely, and then Kansas State, TCU, or Texas Tech. That would be my pick for the Big 12 championship game. All right, and let's move over to a similar league, a similar and different at the same time, a top-heavy league, again, ACC. Uh, Clemson and Florida State te- seem to be the two heavy favorites this year among most models as well as pollsters. Um, I think the, the difference with the Big 12 is there's a lot of, I think, bad teams in this league and then a healthy middle. Yeah, agreed. Um, your assessment, I, I agree with. And to me, this one's pretty straightforward at the top. Clemson and Florida State, power rated 7 and 10, respectively. Those are the best two teams. Clemson, a 62% chance to make the conference championship. Florida State, 56. I do think these are the two teams that make the conference championship game. The next one's on the list for me. It's interesting, actually. Louisville has the third best chance by my numbers at 22%, despite being power rated 39, which in the conference is actually just the sixth best. They're the sixth best power power rated team they have the third best chance to make the conference championship game schedule that schedule is so easy doug only boston college of the power five programs only boston college has an easier schedule louisville is the only power or the only team in, in fbs college football that plays only three true road games they do have two neutral sites but they play only three true road games all year that is the they are the only team that plays that few of true road games and here's the more important thing they don't play Clemson, Florida State, or North Carolina this year. The top three yeah. teams in the ACC. Louisville does not play. It's a very unbalanced schedule. And That's they're a pretty good team, the- too. Like, I don't want to sell them short. I think they're a pretty good team. But but the, the combine that with the schedule, it, it yeah, they have a real shot to, to kind of crash the party on that game. Uh- I have them power rated 39, so I, I would say that they're, they're a decent team. Uh, North Carolina is the third best team for me in the in the ACC. I have power rated 23, a 21% chance to make it because the schedule is more difficult. Uh, Pitt's probably the only other team worth mentioning with a chance. I think they got a 12% chance by my numbers. So I mentioned the Big 12 and the uncertainty and kind of the, the group of teams I was picking. In the ACC, I'm expecting Clemson and Florida State, and I would be uh, mildly surprised if it was anyone other than those two. Yeah, I would agree with that. Let's move over to the SEC. I think obviously you've got Georgia's pretty much a mortal lock to make it in the East. And then you got a two team race in the West, right? That's exactly right. Georgia's got an 87% chance to make the conference championship game. Tennessee is second at 10% chance. So I would be floored if Georgia is not in there. And then in the West, like you said, it's going to be Alabama or LSU. I know people are saying, Hey, Texas A&M, this could be it. Texas A&M is a good team. I got them power rated 16. 
It's only a 3% chance, though, to represent the West in Atlanta. Um, Ole Miss is another good team, 18 overall uh, in my power ratings, only a 1% chance to get to Atlanta. It's Alabama and LSU. LSU is only an underdog in one game. It's at Alabama in week 10 by eight points. Alabama I have favored in every single game, only two games that I have the Tide favored by less than, than 10 points. That would be week two when Texas comes to town and week eight when the Tigers of LSU come to town. So I am expecting Georgia. I am expecting Alabama. Wouldn't be shocked if it was LSU if they find a way to win in Tuscaloosa. They did beat them last year, but that was at home. It was on. An, it was in overtime. It was a two-point conversion. Alabama's a team that was a couple plays away from being 12-0. and 0. I mean, they, they, they lost on a last-second field goal at Tennessee, and they lost on a two-point conversion at LSU, and they finished 10-2. and 2. They could have easily been 12-0. and 0. Now, I know they could have lost another game maybe somewhere else, but um, that team hasn't gone anywhere. They're still power rated number three. I expect Georgia, Alabama, and Atlanta this year um, with LSU the most likely to upset that. And then finally, Big Ten. This is probably – Certainly the East Division, I think, is there's three teams there that are, that can compete for that spot. In the West, I, I probably see it a little differently than you because I think Illinois is also in a group of three that I think could win the West. But tell me how you see that playing out. Yeah, interesting with Illinois there. Um, I won't dis- I won't disagree. I certainly have them kind of back a little bit. Wisconsin's my favorite in the West. 47% chance to make the Big Ten championship game. Uh, 19 is where I have Wisconsin power rated. I- Iowa is who I'm projecting to be their biggest uh, threat. Power rated 27, 29% chance. Illinois then is next. Power rated 41 with an 11% chance. But the East is where it's at, definitely. Ohio State, number two. Michigan, number four. Penn State, number nine in my preseason power ratings. Michigan or Ohio State with a 56% chance to make it to Indy. Michigan with a 30% chance. And Penn State with a 13% chance. It's going to come down to those games against each other. I like Ohio State in all 12. I like Michigan in 11 out of 12, the only game being... Uh, Ohio State that I have them as an underdog. And I like Penn State in 10 out of 12. The only two games being against Ohio State and Michigan. So to me, uh, if those teams go one and one against each other, now we've got ourselves a real interesting scenario. That's what I'm Um, hoping for. (laughs) Yeah, especially if they don't drop any other games. Ohio State has the most difficult schedule of the three um, because they get Notre Dame in the non-conference. You look at Michigan's non-conference, it's uh, putting it Putting it lightly or putting it uh, respectfully, it's not very difficult. Uh, they've got East Carolina, UNLV, and Bowling Green, so not the most difficult slate there. Penn State, you know, they got West Virginia. That that could be something. They got Delaware out of the FCS, and then they have UMass, who, as I said, is my worst power-rated team. So they have the West Virginia game to start. West Virginia is a decent team, power-rated 55. But Ohio State's really the only one that I expect to have a stiff challenge in the non-conference, and that comes from the game at Notre Dame in Week 4. So that might give Ohio State an edge in that conversation if they all finish 11 and one, but it also depends on how those games go, I'm sure, for the committee. So, uh, yes, be interesting in the Big Ten and that East for sure with the three-team race. And then in the West, the West is always wide open, but Wisconsin's a favorite right now by the numbers. Okay, let's take a quick break right here, and we will be back with more Kelly Ford. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's move into the Pac-12 a little bit. I want to start with a team that is not going to win the conference, but that obviously everybody's been talking about all offseason, and that's our friends at Colorado with Deion Sanders and, and all the excitement and buzz that, that's going on there. Um, and we, we don't have to rehash all that, but uh, it's definitely by your model, and I think by my uh, my predictions, it's not, it's not going to threaten 
certainly not going to threaten to win the conference. I don't think it's going to threaten to even make a bowl game. And um, it looks like your most likely outcome seems to be around three wins. Yeah, there was so much talk early this summer, last winter, about this all this money on Colorado win the national championship. I think I even tweeted about it. I was like, I was like, well, thanks for donating to your local sports book. Like, this is not happening. I'm, I'm sorry. This team is not going to to go to the CFP. This team is not going to go to the Pac-12 championship game. This team is most likely not going to go bowling. I have a three percent chance that they go bowling. Like you said, uh, three and nine is the most likely outcome for me. Sixty uh, percent chance to win three plus. There's a there's a thirty percent chance to win four plus. So they're going to be better than they were last year. Last year they ha- they were power rated number one twenty five at the year, at the end of the year. My, and my numbers out of 131 teams this year they come in number 99 it's still last in the in the pac 12 i'm projecting 1.8 conference wins on average that's last in the pac 12 they're going to be better this year than last but that's because it would be really hard to not be if you're looking at the schedule this year i have colorado as the projected favorite in only two games um one by less than a field goal the other by between a field goal and a touchdown that would be week three against colorado state and week seven against stanford both those games at home so um yeah (laughs) 2016 was a great year for Colorado. They finished the year power rated 15 in my numbers. Outside of that, in the last decade, Colorado has not finished the year better than power rating uh, number 68 in my numbers at the end of the year. They've been better than number 68 one time in the last decade. It's when they were number 15 in 2016. So uh, Coach Prime's got his work cut out for him. Uh, He can probably get it turned around at least uh, better than they've been recently, but it's not going to be this year. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. You know, one thing that came very apparent in the Pac-12 last year, and I'm predicting it to happen again this year, and it looks like you are too, is that the Pac-12 is clearly bifurcated into a top six and a bottom six. Um, you agree with that? Uh, without a doubt, 100%. We've talked about the top four. I would also include, uh, after those top four, Oregon State and UCLA. To me, those are two teams that you know have an 18 and 15% chance, respectively, to make it to the conference championship game. After that, like, like UCLA, for me, that's kind of the number six team. Power rated 31 with 5.5 average projected conference wins. The next team kind of below that number is number 62 power rated Washington State with 3.9 projected conference wins and a 1% chance to make it to the conference championship game. I do have Cal power rated at 58, so just better than, than a little better than Washington State, but Cal has a more difficult schedule in the conference and so yeah so they're lower on the projected big 12 stand or excuse me pac 12 standings but yes there is a top six and a bottom six uh for me and the top six is going to be so much fun yeah 31 to 58 is not a gap but it's a chasm yeah, that's right. Actually, let me let me look really quickly um, at that. So I now produce the numbers on a points per game above below FBS average instead of a zero to 100 scale. UCLA, uh, 8.1 points per game above um, FBS average. And then if you go down to where did I say Colorado or Cal at number 58, they are at 1.7 points per game above FBS average. So, <laughs> so you're looking touchdown. at, yeah. yeah, you're looking at six plus six point something points there, 6.4 points maybe between UCLA and Cal on a neutral field. That That is a big gap when you're talking football points per game. So yeah, uh, a chasm. I like the way you put that. That is what that is. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it seems like you would agree that UCLA and Oregon state are outside contenders for the conference title game. Uh, I think primarily for both of them, I think what helps buoy their numbers there is schedule. Right, UCLA doesn't play Oregon or Washington, and Oregon State doesn't play USC. B- bingo. So to, to to be 
similar to Georgia, like these are not the, not uh, to that extreme, but these are still good teams. Like I have yeah. them power rated five and six in the Pac-12, but to your point, they have the two easiest schedules of any Pac-12 team. Oregon State has the easiest schedule in the conference. Again, that's looking at conference and non-conference numbers. Easiest schedule in the conference, UCLA has the second easiest. And, and for the reasons you mentioned, the teams that they miss, it's really important and that people, I think, underestimate still the the impact that schedule difficulty or on the other side ease can have on a team's regular season projections that's win totals that's individual game win expectancies all those things it it it's a two it goes hand in hand it's like i talked about with georgia it's your own team's power rating yes that's very important and it's your own team's schedule what are the power ratings of the teams that you're playing those two things go hand in hand and it is a marriage it's a mix and match of those two on how vegas gets to their win over under win totals and how i get to my projected records uh, if you will and and percent chances to reach each individual threshold in terms of wins so people need to keep that in mind i'm sure your listeners do they're they're analytics folks and, and smart so i'm sure they do but yes the general college football fans sometimes i think forget they're like they're not that good what are you talking about well the schedule is very easy that the louisville that's a perfect example they have yep. such an easy schedule as we talked about yeah and i think like we talked about with louisville potentially kind of backdoor scheduling their way into that top two spot and this is the mm-hmm. the change from going from divisions to top two right i think yep. that that could happen here I, I look at the the loser of the game between oregon state and ucla is probably out but yep. the winner of that game has a real shot to kind of backdoor their way into the top two as the top four kind of pick each other off a hundred percent. And Oregon State has the advantage there. They have that game against UCLA at home. And by my numbers, they are the, excuse me, they are the slightly better power rated team. I said UCLA is at 8.1, Oregon State's at 9.6. So on a neutral field, I would like the, the Beavers by about one and a half points there. So they have the advantage on both sides, being the better team and being at home in that game. But um, yeah, really quickly, if I look at the average projected you know conference wins, this is how it's, it's an easy way to kind of differentiate. USC's at 7.4 in the nine game schedule, Oregon 6.5, Utah 6.2, Washington 6.1, all very close. And then you got Oregon State 5.6 and UCLA 5.5, excuse me. So yeah, that's 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 another way to kind of conceptually think about, okay, Kelly, what are you talking about? What are your percentages actually saying? You keep saying all these power rating numbers. What are we talking about in terms of wins? You look from UC, USC at number one to UCLA at number six, they're only separated by two conference wins on average. All it takes, Doug, as you know, is one or two upsets, and you really upset the card there, and uh, anything can go. I'm, oh, I've said it like 10 times. I'm so excited. <laughs> Me too. Let's talk about – I want to talk about the top four in maybe a little bit more depth, and I've got the team by te- your team-by-team team printouts uh, for each of these. And Let's start with Utah. Um, I have them uh, – You know, to be frank, I had them as the fourth-best team in the conference last year. I think that's controversial because they won the conference – but I, I think some of that was circumstance and a bit of luck in even getting to the conference title game. And then obviously, I think I think you I think USC was a better team, and Utah beat them twice. And and I give them credit because it's any given Saturday, and they won the game when it mattered. Um, but I had them as the fourth best team last year, and I have them as the fourth best team this year. What do you think? And obviously, their schedule is brutal. Yeah, yes, that's true. Um, it, it's the third most difficult schedule in the conference by my numbers, holistically overall. Uh, the most difficult, though, of any of these top four contenders that we're looking at for sure. I actually, I, I just quickly looked at my numbers in twenty and year end twenty twenty two. I did have Utah as the best team in the Pac twelve. Uh, I had them power rated number eight to end last year. I have them number three uh, power rating coming into this year behind USC uh, and and Oregon. So Utah, they're a good team. The Cam Rising injury, you know, how serious is that? Or is he going to miss time? Like. That, that's certainly a factor here, and they need them out of the gate because you get Florida coming to town uh, in week one, and then you have to go to Baylor in week two. Those are two 
talk about my game ratings. Those are two games that are really showing up high on those lists um, before you get Weber State in week three, obviously. But then they get right into it, too, with the contenders. UCLA in week four, uh, Oregon State in week five. And so before they even get to their bye, my numbers favor Utah in each of those games. So they could be five and oh. But if you're looking worst case scenario, like it's not out of the realm of possibility here, Doug, that Utah could be one and four, especially if Cam Rising's not healthy. I mean, he's not playing. My numbers like Utah by seven and a half with a healthy Cam Rising against Florida. They like him by three against Baylor. Weber State, you'd hope that's a win either way. Eight and a half against UCLA, two and a half against Oregon State. So it's not likely. Like this is a a worst case. Worst case, they could be one and four. I'm thinking most likely they're probably four and one, if I had to guess. I mean, they're going to, they might drop, you know, Florida, Baylor, UCLA, Oregon State, one of those. Yeah. Um, the, the two road games, Baylor and Oregon State, that's tough, man. It's hard to those go. Those are not easy games. Yeah. 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 So they, they, they come out hot, is my point. And they're going to need Cam Rising and, and everybody to be on the same page and to be healthy because uh, they're, this does not USC's opening schedule. This is brutal from the get go. Yeah. And then in the back half, it's not like, you know, they've got the game at USC. They've got, they go, they host Oregon. Uh, they go to Washington. Like it, it's yeah. not like there's a bunch of cupcakes there either. No, this is, it's the third most difficult schedule in the country or, or in the conference. Like I said, here's, here's a stat for you. Utah plays by my numbers, the second most difficult collection of opposing FBS offenses in the entire country. Only West Virginia plays a more difficult opposing offense on average on a week-in, week-out basis than Utah. If you go down their schedule and look at my unit ranks for the offenses they're facing, Florida's number 23, Baylor's number 30, UCLA's number 13, Oregon State's number 35, Cal 75. That's a, that's a, that's a, a lesser one. USC number two, Oregon number five, back-to-back weeks against top five offenses. <laughs> Arizona State 50, Washington number seven, Arizona 29, and then they finish with Colorado, who I have 88. So, I mean, you're looking in a three in a three week stretch of USC, Oregon, Arizona State, Washington. You're playing three top seven offenses. Boom, boom, boom. Like, whew, yeah, it's gonna be tough, man. I, I think the one thing Utah has going for it is they are the out of these top four teams. They are the team with with the best defense. Uh, you know, I think because you know, obviously looking back over last year and the last several years, as well as what you're projecting for this year. So I think that's where. Um, and their offense, their, it's crazy. Their offense, you have ranked, if this is the latest number, 13th in the country, but only fifth in the conference, which speaks to the, how strong the offenses are in this conference. It, it- a hundred percent. So with the updated numbers, actually, I think I have them number 12 right now with his fourth in the conference, but still right there, you're talking about the same things. Uh, it, the offenses are so good in that conference. And to your point, they're the number 22 defense by my numbers right now, uh, but that's the best in the Pac-12. So yes, the defense is strong, especially for, for Pac-12 standards. The offense is strong for national standards, but, but they're almost mid-table in the Pac-12 because that's how good the quarterbacks and the offenses are out there in the Pacific Coast this year. It's going to be uh, it's going to be oh so many points. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, let's move on to Washington. Uh, we talked about them a little bit earlier. Uh, looks like you have them. Kind of they're over under at about eight and a half, which I think is about a game lower than what most of the Vegas odds have them at. I think no, no, it's right around the same rate that they have most have at eight and a half as well. Um, you have them at ninety two percent to win more than seven or more games, seventy eight percent to win eight or more games. But then I kind of drop off point. I love looking at this on your charts to win nine or more games. Their odds drop from seventy eight percent at eight or more down to fifty two percent at nine or more, and that seems to kind of be the the sweet spot there. 
Yeah, definitely. That's why you get the eight and a half uh, with with eight or nine games being the most likely by far for for singular outcomes. Like I talked about earlier, it's a really good offense. Top seven nationally. Uh, The defense, though, that's where I got to see it to believe it. They're number 50 for me um, on on that side of the ball, uh, which is just sixth best in the conference. So if I'm looking at Washington's schedule, though, like I talked about earlier, there's only one game. They, they, they are only on projecting as underdogs in one game. That's the game against USC in week 10. I, I, I have the Trojans by about eight. There are four games, though, that I have Washington as a single score favorite. Three of those, Doug, by a field goal or less. So I'm talking about week seven. It's a pick em against Oregon where uh, both teams are coming off a bye. I absolutely love that. The SEC does that, too, with LSU and Alabama. I absolutely love that. I think it's fantastic for the quality of that game. Yeah, um, in their I, final year of existence, the Pac-12 finally figured out how to write a schedule. Oh, I, I, I absolutely, I absolutely love that. It's phenomenal. Uh, better late than never is what I would say to that. Um, week 11 favored by one against Utah week 12 favored by one at Oregon state. And then their other one score uh, projected game is week three. Um, don't overlook it. Washington has to go across the country uh, to, to play Michigan state in East Lansing, Michigan state's not they're not a world beater. This isn't, you know, 2021 Michigan state. I think it was that won a bunch of games. Um, but I haven't power rated 45 and you got to go across a couple a few time zones and you're playing on the road in an environment that those, those fans are still going to be excited about the season that Michigan state can have. I like Washington in that game by about five and a half right now, but, um, it, there's, gonna, there's so many close games. You just go down the list and they're, they're yeah. playing all the contenders um, and they get, you know, they get Oregon state in there as well. They don't have UCLA, but they're playing almost all the big time contenders. Like this is including the top four there in the round Robin. It's going to be so, so enjoyable to watch uh, this Washington team. And I got to see that defense. If that defense is better than I'm projecting, they're going to be real players. If they're not, then I think that's what ultimately might hold them back. Yeah, I'll give you one more. That Boise State game to open the season. Uh, Andy Avalos, yeah. Andy Avalos coached against Kalen DeBoer twice when DeBoer was at Fresno State, and both times he held his offense in in check there. Obviously, Washington has a lot more talent than than Fresno did. I don't expect Washington to lose this game, but I do think it could be an interesting game to watch just to see, you know, how, does Andy Avalos still have you know some some things up his sleeve against Kalen? In that game. Here's another thing with that too that I'm big on. Um, the longer the underdog has to prepare for the game, the better their chances are of winning. In my opinion, that's that totally. the model doesn't the model doesn't see that, but that's my opinion just as a college football fan. And so, anytime you got a week one game, that's a big one, especially maybe viewed as bigger for one than the other. I'm not saying Washington's taking them lightly, but I'm saying Boise State's certainly hyped up for it. Um, that favors the underdog, and I my numbers right now like Washington by about twelve. Um, so I so both teams have the same amount of time, but I think the longer you have the more it favors the underdog so I'm, I'm with you don't don't sleep on it that's actually uh Doug that's the game I know why game day is going to North Carolina South Carolina like I get it that's a big rivalry those are two teams that have high aspirations this year I get the storylines it's week one we haven't had college we're gonna get week zero but we haven't had a full Saturday slate of college football in more than you know nine months at that point can we please get game day on a campus? And that's the game I would have liked to see him go to Washington hosting Boise state. That would have been my pick. I understand why they didn't, but for the record, that's where I would have sent game day. If I was in charge in week one, I think, uh, I think there's a real shot that game day could be out at, uh, at Montlake for the Oregon Washington game there in mid October. Oh. oh yeah, definitely. Especially, I mean, especially if, if, you know, Washington's favorite. Five and oh. yeah. yeah, yeah, they're they're favored in every game coming in. Oregon, we're going to get to them, but uh, same thing. That's not to say that it's guaranteed, but you know, if they take care of their business, whew, oh man, I'm getting excited already thinking about that. 
Let's move on to USC. Uh, obviously, we've talked about them quite a bit. You've got them as eight nationally, uh, you know, first first offense in, in the conference, second in the country. Is that still correct? Or? Yeah, uh, second second nationally behind only Ohio State, yep. first in the conference. Absolutely, yep. And then the defense, number 54 nationally. That's Same seventh question. in the conference. So, yep, exactly. S- similar to Washington. I, yep. The interesting thing I look here, one of the things I like to look at, and I love your win percentage, game by game win percentages on these because this is kind of where I zoom in and I look at the the ones that are under under sixty, under sixty five percent, and I go, okay, those are what I would call a quote unquote losable game. Now, obviously, any game's losable, right? But it, but in a in a normal circumstance, if you're what you get under the sixty percent range, it's like, oh, this is a game that a team could could lose, and I think it correlates pretty heavily then to your kind of win expectation as well. And you look through USC schedule, and they only have two of those. They actually only have two games that are well. I guess they have one at sixty-eight percent. The Utah game at home, which I I think I think they're going to take care of business there. Obviously, with what happened last year. But then they got, you know, like you said, the Notre Dame game. They're fifty-two percent, and and Oregon fifty-four percent. So it really sets up for a pretty successful season for them. But yeah, please. Yeah. So on the website, that's that's one of the things I like about the website now with what I've done with with putting these kind of informative things next to each other. You've got the projected Pac-12 standings, then you've got the projected point spread. So all 12 games on each of these teams in the Pac-12, in this case, uh, on their schedule, where does the projected K forward spread fall? And I've got it sectioned out by, you know, are they favored or underdog? But then even more so, is it the spread zero to three? Is it three to seven? Is it seven to ten? Oh, I love that. Yeah, I was looking at that right before we got on. Yeah, so that to me really tells the story of, yes, USC's favorite in all 12 games, but their expected wins is only 9.8. Well, why is that? Because four, three of those games, they're favored by less than one score, a score or less. Two of those are a field goal or less, like you just said. So the the, the trickiest games are going to be, again, pick them at Notre Dame, six and a half the very next week at home against Utah. So don't sleep on that one. I know USC's got revenge on their mind for them, but you're going to come, you're coming off of a game in South Bend, you're coming back across the country. You got to prepare for another really tough team right away. And then, of course, the game against your Ducks um, up in Eugene in, in week 11. I get that as a one and a half point uh, spread for USC right now. So, yeah, when you talk about the win percent or win expectancies and, you know, what, what could kind of be a quote, a toss up, you know, anything a field goal or less is truly a toss up, but anything within one score. So, you know, 69, 70 percent win expectancy, less than that. Uh, anywhere from 30 to 70%, those could still be toss-ups because those are one-score games in my mind. And so, uh, or, or by my numbers, not in my mind, by my numbers. So that's how we get to where we are with them. 63% chance to win 10-plus games, 30% chance to win 11-plus, just a 7% chance to go 12-0. and 0. But this is the best team in the Pac-12 by my numbers. I am buying it this year. I, I am a believer. They're, they're a full game better in the conference projected conference standings than any than Oregon at number two 7.4 for USC 6.5 for Oregon so it it's going to take it's going to take an upset but it's only going to take one upset right to pull them back to the pack and um it's really going to come down to who, who wins the round robin who who goes two and one or three and oh in the round robin and they're going to set themselves up to be in the best position to make that Pac-12 championship game for sure yeah you're spot on I've been talking about that too saying like okay you've got the three game round robin you have to win at least two of those. It, it, yep. Anybody who anybody who only wins one of those, you, you're probably out. Um, yep. Yeah. You know, may, uh, barring some weird circumstances and other upsets or stuff. I think what you said is interesting about, uh, you know, Oregon being being the next highest at what six and a half conference wins. I mean, four teams in this conference won seven or more games last season. Uh, USC at eight, eight and one. Oregon, Washington, Utah all at seven and two. Mm. I. I would fully expect there to be, even though there is more of a round robin at the top, I, I, I don't see any scenario where 
there isn't at least a second team that wins seven or more conference games. But again, this is the numbers. And, and I think that's where we kind of talked about earlier, they kind of, they kind of uh, push everything to the middle a little bit, but uh, you know, somebody I think will win seven or more besides you, besides USC. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and, and not just the average projected wins. You can also see on the on the standings graphic, you can see the percent chance that I that my numbers give each team to win each win total within conference play. So you can see actually the most likely outcome uh, or one of the most likely outcomes for each of those teams. You know, you're really looking at between six or seven games. So, yes, without a doubt, you know, USC is looking somewhere between seven and eight. But then Oregon, Utah, Washington, those group that grouping two of the three could easily get to seven wins if they you know take care of business elsewhere and then the round robin happens as the round robin happens so i agree with you i think that's the way it's gonna gonna play out it's just when you multiply the win probabilities as we talked about that's how you get to where you are oregon now that we're talking about your your ducks i i like this team so much uh three games that I have them as underdogs by a field goal or less, and one more game that I have them as a favorite by a field goal or less. Number 13 nationally in my power ratings, a top five offense, the defense number 44. You're sensing a trend here with these Pac-12 contenders, but this defense slightly better than, than the Washington and the USC defense that we talked about, of course, worse than the Utah defense. But this is this is the number four defense in the country, or excuse me, in the conference by my numbers. Uh, they're behind, of course, Utah, Oregon State. And then I'm looking, actually, I have Washington State with a number 41 defense, Oregon at 44. So those are the defenses that I have ahead of Oregon. Texas Tech, two and a half point favorite. Washington's a pick them with a 48% win probability. So they fall on the wrong side of that. Utah, dogs by two points. USC, dogs by a point and a half. There's just so many close games. I mean, outside of those four, Oregon should take care of business. I like yeah. you by... I like you by more than a score in all of those and by double digits in all but one of those other games. The only game that's not double digits out of the other ones is the Oregon State game to end the year seven and a half. But um, you got four really projected close games. You got that Oregon State game that's going to be tricky. And then the rest of them, you certainly expect to take care of business. But geez, I've just named five out of 12 games, right? That you're like, that could go either way, really. So that's why for me, Oregon, their most likely record is nine and three, followed by 10 and two, then eight and four, then 11 and one. I would be very surprised, and this is a big range, I'd be very surprised if Oregon's finished outside of the range of 8 to 11 wins. Again, I know that's a huge range. The most likely is 9 or 10. And the the question is, are they going to do well enough in the round robin? I mean, that's what what we've been talking about. Can they win two out of the three in the round robin and take care of business elsewhere? Because Oregon, like every team in the Pac-12 over the last decade, has at times stumbled or, or stubbed their toe <laughs> in a game that you wouldn't have expected because that's just that's the Pac-12 the, the the phrase that everyone uses and I'm sure they do out there too in Pac-12 country it cannibalizes itself yep, and it's every year you've you've got you've got really good teams the Pac-12 has just lacked an elite team you have more really good and above average like almost to great teams but then than most conferences but you lack that elite team uh in, in the last you know since washington was in the cfp in 2016 so can one of these teams usc the most likely probably can one of these teams rise above the rest and become take that next step and become an elite team um <laughs> and, and not and not get upset or not stub their toe in a game that you don't expect some tricky trip to tucson or or to well in to, this case it'd be phoenix uh the, phoenix you know, yeah, yeah go back yeah. to 2019 Sorry. the justin herbert yeah. year you know yeah. oregon was on track to make the playoffs and lost in the second to last game at at I arizona remember. state and guess who their second to last game is this year? It's at Arizona at State. Arizona so State. Yes, that sir. is a little bit of a trap game too, because it's right after the USC game, right before the Oregon State game. Um, yep. Obviously, if 
Oregon's a team they want to be, and and, th- and I think they should be. You, it's a game you can't lose, but, you know, you see that stuff crazy happen thing, all the time. Crazy things happen in college football. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think th- – I think this tracks pretty well. I, I've, I'm predicting Oregon, you know, a little, I'm a little bit, I'm probably a homer. <laughs> I try to, I try to set my bias aside as much as I can. It's not always easy to do. I, I have them, I have them projected a little bit better than not projected, but predicted a little bit better than your model. I, I've got them at 10 and two, 11 and one, uh, you know, just kind of depending on how those, those games break. Um, I also think that they're going to win that USC game. So I think that's probably where, where I get that extra bump. So but no, your your model lines up with I think expectations. I think the the thing here with Oregon is the defense. Like we talked about with with Washington and USC to a degree, I think it's the same thing with Oregon. And where I think, and I'd be curious how you handle the, the you know the, the roster turnover now, right? It's it's not like the old days when you had a team and everybody came back and you had your new recruits. Now you've got you know the transfer portal and, and Oregon you know, brought, turned over half, over half the roster this off season, uh, 30, 30 freshmen and probably another 15 transfer portal uh, players. And, and most of those being on defense. And I think they're projected to have six, at least six, maybe as many as seven new starters on defense, all from the portal. How do you, how do you bake that in your model? Yeah. So the, tra- the increased usage of the transfer portal, the one-time tree free transfer that all college football players are getting now, plus the co- extra COVID year of eligibility. Uh, those all three things are kind of a confluence of events that lead to making the returning production calculation much more time intensive than it had been previously kind of prior to COVID and, and these other things that have happened. So I capture all of that to the best of my absolute ability in uh, the, the, the re- returning production for these preseason ratings. And then once we get going in the season, of course, the preseason rating component gets devalued and phased out and it gets replaced with in-season data, which, of course, is much more valuable, much more informative and, and much easier to play with and, and, and view trends from. Um, but yes, for the preseason, returning production is the biggest component. That's where I capture transfers both in and out. So Oregon was certainly a team that uh, kept me on my toes and I was trying to keep track of where is everyone. <laughs> Not as much as Colorado, though. Not as much as Colorado. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I will say I learned a lot from USC last year and how they how they were able to, to piece it together. And I know maybe not every team's going to be as successful as they were, at least on the offensive side of the ball, of making it all come together. But I learned a lot about massive roster turnover through the transfer portal from USC last year. We're going to learn even more from Colorado this year because they've done the USC model kind of to the next level. Um, you know, you, you learned I learned from James Madison last year about the FCS jump, so that's helped me with Jacksonville State and Sam Houston. Again, we've talked about Power 5. We talked about Pac-12 here. My model, my my ratings are applied to all of FBS. So we're going one through 133. Next year, we're going to welcome in Kennesaw State, make it 134. So uh, it's comprehensive. It goes all the way down. Um, I, I wanted to mention, because you said you're higher on Oregon than I am, which I get, hey, it's a good team. It's an exciting team. Like I said, it's a top five offense. So um, there's reason for excitement. Did you see, Doug, did you see the JP poll? Josh Pate put yeah. out his uh, number five. I was like, holy I'm not quite cow. that high. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say I'm, I'm, you know, hopeful to be that high, yeah, but, I, but I, yeah. you know, I'm not, I'm more, you know, I'm more in the 10 to 11 win range. I think if everything breaks right, it can be a playoff team. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's not, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the most likely outcome by any stretch, but I do think, you know, and I, you know, I talk to people in and around the program. Um, I, there's things that I've heard um, that I think, 
lead me to believe that that the, there's going to be more improvement on defense than than maybe some people are expecting. But but that's not something that is easy to bake into a model or or that can be baked into a model even necessarily. So I, I'm not I don't take issue with anybody's model who isn't predicting that because that's that's kind of that development and and kind of in more intangible things, right? That aren't just in the numbers. Totally. And no model, mine included, can capture everything. No model's perfect. I'm very quick to to admit that. And there are blind spots. There are rough edges, all those things. The, uh, the, the, the That led me to a, to a thought, though. And I think it's a really good point you just made. You Because you said you think maybe the Oregon defense is going to be better than people are giving it credit for. I think, I mean... You look at USC, you look at Oregon, you look at Washington. Of course, Utah's already got a, you know a pretty solid defense there in the top twenty-five. One of those, if those other three though, whichever one it might boil down to, whichever one ends up having the best defense is going to be the one that that goes to the Pac-12 championship game or wins the Pac-12 because all of those offenses, USC, Oregon, Washington, like I said, they're all top seven offenses. Yep. All the defenses are outside the top forty. So which defense is going to rise to the occasion and play at a top twenty? top 25 level that could at the end of the day the end of the season that could be the difference so i think that's certainly something to keep an eye on and i think if you're hearing intel out of the oregon camp shoot man maybe that's what josh pate was hearing too and that's why he's got him at number five uh i don't know but if that comes to fruition then yes like i said i already have oregon as a favorite to make the pac-12 championship game that could be a tipping point though that makes them the favorite in the conference i do i think i mentioned at the top i do for the oregon fans want to say i have oregon with the 12th best chance to make the cfp it's 11 percent. i have an 11 percent chance oregon makes it that is 12th best nationally that is second best in the pac-12 behind usc's 25 percent you are ahead of washington number 15 at 5.8 percent and utah number 16 5.4 percent actually have oregon state on there at number 18 4.2 percent ucla is number 21 at 2.6 percent so those are the pac-12 teams for me that have the best chance to make the cfp no surprise it is the top six oregon coming in number two in the pac-12 11 percent chance one one in ten just more than one in ten for oregon to make it there and if that defense plays better than i'm projecting that number will go up i promise I want to leave leave you with two two things. I, I'm going to share and maybe ask you to share some similar things. So, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit off the air before we started recording. You know, some of my pet peeves with, you know, kind of national pundits or game announcers and stuff when it comes to um, their use of or lack of use of analytics. Historically, I think we've we've noted there's been some improvements, particularly in the punditry space, not so much in the broadcaster space. Uh, with but maybe a couple exceptions, uh, you know, and I, I'll I'll share two that are kind of my all time pet peeves that bug me to this day and will probably forever will. Um, one of them being when people rank offenses and defenses by yardage, you know, by total yards per game, total offense, total defense. It's like this like 1950s era mentality <laughs> that still persists, and like ESPN still leads their their NFL and college football offense and defense rankings with. Which team gives up the most average yards per game? And I'm just like, that is my all time, <laughs> like, just kills me. Yeah, no, no doubt that that is, um, like you said, many years ago, or maybe not as long back many years ago as we would like, but that is a um, kind of. Uh, a old way of viewing a strength of a unit. Um, it's very fundamental. At the end of the day, those that's important. You know, in the game of football, yards per game and things like that that that, that comes with some significance. But we have much more sophisticated ways now to judge so many uh, offenses and defenses. So of course, more. for me. 
for, for, for me, you know, Bill Connolly's five factors are, are still a huge piece of really probably any power rating that's out there from a college football standpoint or, or NFL for that matter. You're talking about efficiency, which far and away for me is the most important thing. How efficient are you? And when you're talking about efficiency to, at, a, at a simple level, it's on first down, are you getting uh, it's, it's success, success rate? Yep. Yeah, yeah, success rate. Are you getting 50% yeah. of the yardage you need? On second down, you're getting 70%. And on third and fourth down, you're getting 100% of the yardage you need. That's efficiency. Explosiveness. So how often are you, you know, breaking off big plays, plays of, you know, how many yards or more, and it changes for, for, for rushes versus passes. And people have different thresholds that they use. Um, so, so I won't nail down one, but you can kind of generalize what those are. Field position. So so where are relative to, to uh, your opponents and, and to the rest of college football where are you beginning drives uh, and that helps tell a story also finishing drives are you finishing drives with touchdowns are you kicking field goals are you turning it over to end a drive and of course that is the fifth of his five factors is turnovers um usc of course uh experienced such a positive turnover effect last year uh year over year we don't find that to be sustainable or replicatable but um you know they had great success in it last year or great luck with it last year we'll see if that happens again this year those are some other metrics that you can use to evaluate the um the effectiveness or the uh strength of an offense or a defense and then of course you combine those and you can get uh with the special teams sprinkled in you can get your overall power rating but yes that certainly grinds my gears too i've actually dug i think i think i've just you know moved past it i just tune that out i don't even let it bother me anymore there are other arguments that are made in the college football analytics space or just the Twitter sphere that get me going too on that, on those things. But um, yeah, to me, I'm with you. It's annoying. It's outdated. And we have much better ways to judge football teams now. And if the commentators, the the broadcast teams, the, the national writers, whoever would start using those more than they have been, that would help the general public become educated on some of these things too, that would just further further advance the conversations we can have about about college and I guess NFL teams as well just as a as just a, as a fan community you said it and that's why that's why it, it frustrates me because I think the level of discourse could be so much better uh, mm-hmm. if it were led by the the people with the loudest voices I, you said you said something about finishing drives that's going to segue into my second biggest uh, or you know my second of the two big pet peeves and that is the use of red zone scoring percentage as a metric when we should be using red zone touchdown percentage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's great. Hey, if you're, if you're finishing off every drive in the red zone with points, good. I'm, I'm happy for you. But if you're going to be an elite team, if you're going to achieve goals that, uh, you know, to win a conference or to win a national championship or make a CFP, kicking field goals in the red zone that you're that you're failing that, that that's not it's, success that is, it, that is yeah. not what the top team should be judged by so i'm never going to get mad about points but if you're going to get critical and you're going to evaluate through the lens of the top teams in the country which of course oregon fans and washington and these other ones that are listening th- that's how we view these teams that's that's the goals we have for these teams if you're kicking field goals you're failing um yeah. and so yeah i i'm with you red zone red zone scoring percentage is not that's not informative uh, to your point red zone touchdown percentage certainly and and defensive too it, it's it's same for the defense you, you don't want your defense to give up points but if your defense is consistently stopping the other team from scoring touchdowns in the red zones and you're making them kick field goals especially in college where you're gonna miss the kickers are gonna miss a decent amount of even close field goals like that th- those are wins if you don't want yeah. your defense to be in a position where they're getting down there anyway but assuming that they're already there you get you stopping to kick field goals, your defense is winning and your offense is losing. And there's really, I mean, there's data to support that. And I think you're right. The average college football fan 
maybe doesn't fully recognize the importance of that or understand the importance of that because the people with the loudest voices, as you said, the people with the biggest platforms aren't always preaching that message. Uh, I agree with you. That's certainly the right way to think about it. Yeah, I, when when you look around college football and the best offenses in the country are averaging around four points per drive and, and even really good offenses average over three points per drive. So that tells you right there, not every drive is going to go to the red zone in the first place. So when you get there, if you only score three points, you're underperforming yep. the average of a good football or of a good offense. Yep. So it's a yep. fail. It's a failure. And no people doubt. need to start seeing it that way in college football. NFL is different. It's a different game. So it, it, I might judge that a little. Di- it's still a failure compared to getting a touchdown, but I, I think in the the impact in the NFL is muted a little bit more just because of the the lower scoring nature of that game and the more uh, closer score and the com- competitive balance. Yeah, of, of that league. Yep. Yep. All right, Kelly, I have kept you on here for 90 minutes plus, and I really, really appreciate it. This has been, I mean, I could talk, I could probably do this for another 90 minutes, but uh, I'm sure you have to go. I have to go. My listeners are probably uh, about ready to turn off their their podcast as well. So really appreciate you coming on. Um, Tell everyone once again where they can find all your great work. Yeah, Doug, I appreciate you having me on. This was so much fun. Uh, We could have gone forever. Like you said, you can find me on Twitter um, at KFord Ratings. Uh, You can find my website, kfordratings.com. I'm also writing for thelines.com as a college football contributor this year. I'm also on their college football um, podcast or their college football show, which is a podcast and a video component as well on YouTube with my friend Brett. And then I am with my friend uh, Tyler doing the Saturday Glory Calculated Risk podcast that also has a video component. And with my friend Zach, I'm doing the We Hate Your Team podcast, a part of the VSN Collegiate (laughs) Network. So you can find me. Hey, man, it's a. I recorded a different podcast tonight doing this one with you too. And we're pushing 1 a.m. on the East Coast. I've got some more ratings work to do before I go to bed. It's 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 a fun time of year. It's keeping me busy. It's been a hobby to this point, like I said, but it's starting to turn into maybe a little bit more and I, I'm thrilled about it. So I really enjoy the college football work. You can find me in all those places. Follow me on Twitter at K4Ratings and check out the website K4Ratings.com. That's, you can keep up with all my stuff in those two places and I'll let you know through those channels, uh, these other places as well. But Doug, I appreciate it. Best of luck to Oregon this year. Um, Um, I said it a million times. I'll say it one more. This is the conference race that I'm most excited about. Uh, The Sun Belt's going to be a fun one in the G5, but overall, I'm most excited about the the, the Pac-12 this year. I think there are four really good teams with two more sniffing around that are ready to pounce, and uh, Oregon is squarely in that mix. I'm going to enjoy it for a lot of reasons. The final year of the four-team CFP, the final year of the Pac-12, at least as we know it, and uh, there's just so much going to change in college football in 2024. I'm going to relish this 23 season, and uh, I can't wait to see this Pac-12 race unfold. I am so excited. All right, and after the break, I'm going to answer some of your listener questions. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Let's get to those questions. Okay, first question is from John V. Adams, MA. A lot of transfers penciled in on the two deep of the defense. We know that the defense is complex and takes time perhaps years to perform at a high level in it. How much does this impact this year's defense with all of the newcomers? 
We also had a similar question from Botley, who says, I had a little heartburn listening to Hithilde's portal treadmill comments on a recent episode. We wouldn't have gotten Virginics or Gonzo without it. I also think Oregon is uniquely positioned to capitalize on the portal. So do you guys agree or disagree? I'd love a little deeper dive on this. So I think these are great questions about the portal, and, and we've obviously talked a lot about the portal. And, and if you look back at last season, we've talked about this before as well, and Oregon brought in like 10 or 11 transfers ahead of the 2022 football season. And every single one of those transfers, except one, was in the two deep on either offense or defense and was a significant contributor uh, for the team last season. And most of them at a pretty high level. Obviously, you're talking about guys like Bodix, guys like Bucky Irving, um, you know, guys like Gonzo. Obviously, you know, some of the best players on the team came in by the transfer portal last year. The one guy who brought in, who was brought in ahead of 2022 and didn't contribute was actually injured all uh, most of the season. So we don't know whether, whether he would have been or could have been uh, a contributor as well. So I think that track record is something to really uh, keep an eye on. And if you look back at um, what Oregon has brought in to the portal this season, I think you see a pretty similar profile and a pretty similar expect set of expectations coming from the players that Oregon's bringing in through the portal. And I know the first question was specifically about defense, but, but I want to talk about it on both sides of the ball, right? So again, Oregon, for the most part, is bringing in players who they, they they haven't sat the bench at their previous uh, at their previous school, right? They didn't get beat out and were buried on the depth chart and transferred. Like these are guys that played. These are guys that started. These are guys that played and started at Power Five football programs for the most part, um, or 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 played and started at a high level at uh, G five or, or lower levels of, of football. So I think that's where you really look and see what what the staff is doing in the portal is bringing in proven players. And to fill holes on the current roster. So let's start on offense, right? Who are we talking about? Let's look at the receiver position, right? So we're, we brought in Gary Bryant Jr. We brought in Treshawn Holden from Alabama, Gary Bryant Jr. from USC. I mean, those are two premier programs, right? These are guys that played at those programs um, effectively. Um, and then, you, you know, you got another, another one there. Taz Johnson from Troy, right? Lower level play, but was one of the most effective receivers in all of college football last year. In fact, um, PFF rated him as the second most valuable receiver in the entirety of FBS football. So these are three high-level players at that wide receiver position. And now go look at the offensive line. You brought in our, a Johnny Cornelius, two-year starter at Rhode Island, the highest-rated uh, tackle in the transfer portal, highly sought after Ohio State, Nebraska. These are the teams that wanted him. Uh, and he's coming to Oregon, right? Okay, then you look at Nashad Strother from East Carolina. Again, two-year, three-year starter there. Highly effective. Uh, Junior Angle coming over from Texas. Three-year starter there. Highly effective. These are guys you're bringing in to fill holes. You're not bringing in guys who maybe can play, maybe can't play. You're getting, bringing in guys you know who can play because you've got years of film on them playing, playing football at a high level in college against other high-level uh, uh, players as well. A tight end, you know, that's an area where, you know, we had some holes unexpectedly you needed to fill. I think Oregon did a good job of bringing in bodies there. I wouldn't say they brought in impact players to the same degree at the other positions we've talked about, but they brought in bodies. Um, and sometimes that's the best you could do. It was a position that it wasn't a lot of, um, a lot of high end talent in the portal at. And, you know, you do what you did. I think, it, you know, you come in and you take two guys there at that position, right? So you really don't need both to hit 
you know, one's a depth play, you know, whichever one's better probably gives you five to 10 snaps a game. The other guy's a backup and, and it gives you the depth that you need to survive a, a full season. Uh, switching over to defense, right? And this is where I think the real impact will be felt and going back to John's question, right? You know, you're, you're talking about bringing Nico Reed, your starter at Colorado at corner, probably moving inside to, to play nickel star. You're, you're bringing in a Kyrie Jackson who was a part-time starter at Alabama, high level football player proven. Uh, he's probably going to start at one of your corner spots. You're bringing in Tysheem Johnson, Ole Miss, again, guy who started in the SEC, played at a played at a pretty high level there. You're bringing in Evan Williams, you know, from from the Mountain West, all conference player there, proven. Right, all of these guys factor into being starters or at the very least heavy in the rotation along the the back end of the defense, the defensive backfield, which you know, safety, quite frankly, is is one of the positions that you need to upgrade the most. And now you've taken the two guys who were your starters last year, and you've turned them into backups this year because you've replaced them with two guys who are better starters. That's how you make your team better. And yeah, you can you can talk about scheme and complexity and all that, but at the end of the day, defense is about talent, and you upgraded the talent at both safety spots. You have a guy playing nickel this year, whether that's Nico Reed or whether that's Jaleel Florence or whether that's Cole Martin or whether it's all of those three the guys playing nickel this year have more of a coverage skill set than, than we had last year at that position. And that in this league with the passers in this league, I think that's going to prove to be a wise strategic move. that I think Oregon learned from last year and they went out and got the bodies that they needed to be able to play that position uh, more effectively in coverage. Um, you know, and then you look in the, in the front, right? You, you brought in a, a Birch, right? Birch, a five-star player, proven player in the SEC, South Carolina. Um, now you're not going to, you're going to ask him probably to play, uh, you know, fewer snaps and focus in on what he does best instead of trying to be the all world, do everything guy, right? He's, he's surrounded by better talent here, more depth. He could focus on being the best, uh, the best version of Birch at, on any given play and not have to focus so much on, on trying to do it all across the entire defense on every play. Uh, again, you've got, you know, Jacobs coming over from Iowa starter. It in, in Iowa, who's one of the best defenses in the country every year. So obviously he's a proven talent at linebacker. Uh, you've moved Jamal Hill down from safety to linebacker, you know, hoping to shore up that position. Obviously not a transfer. Uh, and then you bring in Connor Connor Sway from Arizona State, who was a rotation player there. Again, depth depth player, backup player fits your mo- your mode a little bit better. Than, than what you had at that position last year. Maybe not, maybe not as talented at that at that spot at that backup spot, but um, but a better fit. And both of those things are important. So, for all of those reasons, as well as the the freshman that came in and the return of Popo and just the the overall like improved depth in the front, particularly development of you know some of the younger guys in the defensive backfield as well. I just think this defense is going to be significantly deeper this year and, and quite frankly, significantly more athletic and talented. And I think also being year two of the system, the guys that have been here, you know, the half of the, the three quarters of the defensive players who are returning or, or two thirds or one half or whatever it is, are going to be in that year two. That helps bring all the newcomers up to speed even faster. Uh, the a full off season of the coaching staff and the strength staff and the conditioning staff and everything. So I expect Oregon to be able to take a, a big leap this year on defense. And, and I think the incoming talent from the portal will be a big, a big reason why you're looking at six or seven starters coming from the portal on defense this year. And I think that that is the question of the season for Oregon. 
that will define whether this is a playoff capable team or a nine and three team. All right, let's move on. Sticky sports. I'm not sold on the linebacker room for the ducks. Jackson is super fast. Jacobs hopefully stabilizes it a bit, but Hill is switching positions. Soleil isn't a world beater. What gives you confidence if this group isn't too thin? Um, it might be a little on the thinner side than what you like to see, you know, as you get into year three, year four in the program, right? I mean, they, they basically have six scholarship players at linebacker. Uh, they play two at a time. Um, so, you know, in theory, you have a full three deep there. You know, dime packages, you're playing only one at a time. So, you know, we, certainly four four guys who are, are in the rotation for sure are going to be playing, right? So you've got Jacobs, Bossa, Hill, and Sue. Um, and then, you know, obviously if Devin Jackson can be a replacement level player, that gives you five that can play in the rotation in a, in a two man rotation, which is, which is good. It's good. It's plenty. Um, you know, I assume Mixon's probably not going to be ready. Uh, I think that this, it's a little thin if injuries occur for sure. If, if you don't have more than, you know, more than two injuries, you probably don't have a, a depth concern for this season. And I think obviously what you're seeing you know, Oregon is doing, bringing in, um, you know, Dylan Edwards or Dylan Edwards and um, Kamar Matuti. And then of course, Braden Platt is committing soon and, and Oregon looks to be a heavy favorite there. So bring in those three guys, they fit the defense, what you're trying to do. They fit the mold of what you're trying to do. And um, they will add, you know, depth to the room, not only next year, but into the future as Dan starts to build this linebacker room in the image he wants, you know, back to, Back to what you were saying, I think the fit of these players is much better, right? If you look at the linebacker room last year, you know, and the let's say the five guys who played, right? Boss is really the only one returning. Uh, Noah Sewell's great player, was a better fit for the previous defense. Not the best fit for Dan's defense, necessarily. Um, I think, you know, obviously... A lot of hope in Justin Flo didn't really pan out here. I also don't think his fit was the best for this defense, as we saw uh, when he was healthy last year. Um, and then, you know, you have guys like LaDuke and Keith Brown. Um, again, those were kind of bigger body, downhill, thumper kind of linebackers uh, that were that were much suited for a different, uh, a different kind of defense. So I, I think just the changing of the linebacker prototype, body type, athletic profile, um, from last year's team to this year's team, as well as being in second year of the program, I think is I think I'm optimistic. There's there's going to be an improvement in linebacker play uh, due to those factors as well. Charlie Bauman asks, uh, "What's the biggest trap game of the season?" Uh, it's this is a great question. I, I think Arizona State's probably the one that that looks stands out most obviously. It's you know the second to the last game of the season. It's right after USC. Right before Oregon State, that seemed it's on the road at Arizona State. That seems like the most obvious trap game there. So that'd be the easy first pick. Uh, I think if you want to look at a couple other potential ones, you know, Washington State at home, which is sandwiched in between road games at Washington and at Utah. Uh, maybe Cal at home, which is after the at Utah game before USC at home. Um, you know, the. At Stanford, right after Colorado, before the bye, maybe. Uh, seems a little, little bit of a stretch there. So, I mean, honestly, Oregon, as we've talked about, I think has a really favorable uh, schedule set up. I think the at Arizona State game is the obvious trap. 
Um, Dwarberg asks, if I told you two ducks from the secondary make first or second team all conference, who would they be? I'm going to go with Evan Williams and Kyrie Jackson. Uh, I think those are the two that I would I would say most likely. I'd maybe put Taishim Johnson as a potential third one there, but I, I like uh, I like Evan and Kyrie as the top two, and I would probably say Evan at the top one. I think you know playing safety I think gives him a little bit more of an advantage there as well, and uh, I think he also has a pretty good reputation coming over from the Mountain West, which people in the footprint of the Pac-12 will will be more familiar with him. So sometimes these things are popularity familiarity kind of awards, and that I think will give him a little bit of a leg up as well. Uh, Reno Tahoe Duck says, you guys mentioned the F plus ratings a lot, and I was curious what sets it apart from other advanced metrics. <laughs> well, obviously, we just spent a whole episode talking to Kelly Ford, K Ford Ratings, who does his own system as well. Um, I wouldn't say set apart necessarily. I think one of the things I like about F plus is basically a blend of the two most heralded systems that, that are out there, right? So you have Bill Connolly, who has developed um, SP plus. Uh, which is published on ESPN now. Uh, you have to be an ESPN Plus insider to see that. And then you have the uh, Brian, F- I always mispronounce his name, Freemio, F-R-E-M-I-E-A-U or something like that. It, it produces FEI, which is the Freemio Efficiency Index. And so basically, if you take FEI and you take SP Plus and you look at them separately, there's a lot of similarities in the in the overall rankings and ratings and uh, and these are again power ranking systems, right? Um, but I think where what's cool about F plus is it takes the two of them and kind of combines them together into a into a single set of rankings across the various metrics you're looking at. So I think that's that's kind of why it's why I like to quote it, and I think why why QB likes to quote it is because you get the best of both worlds all in one all in one shot there with F plus. So uh, you can check that out at Football Outsiders. Both FEI and F plus are over there. Uh, they might have moved over to CFB. Now where did they move? Anyway, yeah, BCF Toys, bcftoys.com is where they, they moved over to, I think, for this year. Michael asks, Oregon was almost last in the country in percentage of third down throws beyond the first down marker. Was that a function of Bo's limitations for throwing downfield, a lack of receivers, the offensive coordinator, or something else? I mean, I think this is going to be a more subjective answer. I personally think it was primarily play calling like the offensive coordinator, Kelly, Kenny Dillingham. He seemed to favor um, horizontal action behind the line of scrimmage um, uh, quite often to try to either get a first down or get a touchdown in those type of situations. Um, you see a lot of screens, a lot of backs out of the backfields, a lot of wide receiver screens, those kind of things um, in those scenarios. I'm not sure whether that was because he didn't have trust in Bo um, you know, throwing past the sticks or whether that was just a function of what he's engineered to do because he sees mismatch opportunities in horizontal space and getting the ball to playmakers. But I think that was primarily the reason. I do think maybe a lack of receiving talent could be a secondary reason, and I think that could be something I'll be interested to watch this year. Um, you know, I think we have better talent, uh, better and deeper talent at the receiver position, particularly in the slot, which is often a, a, a third down making kind of position. And then I think, um, you know, we should see how Stein likes to call those a little bit better, a little bit differently versus Kenny. Good question. Mikey G, what does Dan need to do better at? And do you have a sense of how much his decision making is driven by analytics? I mean, he definitely looks at analytics. I think the program definitely has analytics um, front and center and, and a big part of what they do. So I'd say it's, it's, 
prevalent for sure. Uh, but of course, every coach is also going to go on gut in, in the in the moment, right? You're gonna you're gonna you know what your analytics says, but you're also going to make gut decisions. I thought Dan was actually a very aggressive coach last year. I think the numbers bear this out. Um, in fourth down situations, for example, in field goal versus touchdown decisions, punt versus go decisions. Um, you know, very, very aggressive. One of the more aggressive coaches in the country last year, which I actually love. I, I think the numbers bear out that aggressiveness uh, in those situations pays off um, on the on the long haul more often than it doesn't. And I think uh, I saw something that uh, said Oregon ended up like 15th or 16th in the country last year on points added because of fourth down aggressiveness. And I think that number was actually closer to five or six before Bo's injury. And then, you know, they, they kind of missed on some several fourth and shorts, obviously in the Washington game, the Oregon state game, and maybe even the Utah game as well. So before Bo's injury, they were lights out. in, in those situations afterward, they were a little less efficient, but still on the season as a whole, their aggressiveness paid off far more often than it didn't. Um, going to the first part of the question, what does Dan need to be better at? Um, I'm sure there's a lot of things in year two he's going to be thinking he needs to be better at than, than he was in year one. A couple things off the top of my mind. Um, I actually think his, his in-game decision-making was really, really good. Um, we talked, you know, just what I was talking about with the kind of fourth down, those kind of decisions makings for the most part, I think was really strong. I think there's probably a couple of those where he let his emotions probably, dictate decisions that, he, that he'd like to have back, you know, maybe the, the fourth down punt at the end of the Washington or decision not to punt, you know, in your own territory at the end of the Washington game, understand why you went for it and fourth and one there, you know, probably would like to have that back. Uh, I think there was a similar situation in the Oregon state game, but you know, toward the end of that, that it was fourth down in your own territory. Both of those led to short fields in the Washington game. It led directly to the, you know, the winning field goal in the Oregon state game. It led to a touchdown drive. That was part of that comeback. Um, again, there's reasons he made those decisions. The punting last year was atrocious. Um, and also Oregon was very good on fourth and one. So it, it was understandable why he would make those decisions. Uh, but probably a couple that he, he'd do over again differently. I'd say another area where he could get better at is timeout usage. And I'd say the opposite in the opposite way that, that we often saw with Mario, right? Where with Mario, we often saw a lot of what I would call wasted or unnecessary timeouts, especially early in halves, early in games, early in halves, which drove us nuts. I think Dan probably saved timeouts uh, a little more than he maybe should have at times. Again, I'll go back to the to the fourth and one play against Washington. You know, that if you remember, that was Bo had gotten hurt on the previous drive. Washington scored the touchdown to tie. Oregon got the ball back, handed it off three straight times, ended up in that fourth and one. Bo standing there next to Dan, jumping up and down, wanting to go back into the game. Take a timeout. Take a timeout there. Collect, you know, give yourself time to think. Give, uh, you know, give yourself time to talk to the trainer and say, is Bo really ready to go? Is he not? Like, you know, that's that's a glaring case of probably underuse of timeouts. I think there might have been a couple more examples over the year. But overall, I mean, I think we're, we're kind of quibbling. I think his game management was pretty pretty good. I think their middle eight was excellent all year. I um, think their adjustments at halftime were good most of the year, I think with the exception of the Washington game uh, and maybe the fourth quarter of the Oregon State game, uh, although that was, seemed like everything went off the rails there. So um, 
you know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's something to to the end of that game where you can see a need to maybe keep the team a little more. Again, that might be another timeout situation, right? Like take a timeout on defense somewhere in that Oregon State drive and try to figure out like what's going on. How can we like re- regroup a little bit? Maybe something you could do on the sideline that will help help that as well. That kind of just seemed like it ran off the rails and steamrolled and nobody ever steadied the team there, unlike what you saw in the Washington State game earlier in the year where the offense was kind of the the driver and steadying the team in that Washington state game. And you never really saw that on the defensive side of the ball in that Oregon state game. So, uh, you know, those are some things, but again, I think, I think he's, he's off to a good start and I expect there to be improvement. I don't see why there wouldn't be. Oregon football realist asked a few months ago, you guys said the 24 class would be the best class in school history. Obviously things haven't exactly worked out as we had hoped thoughts on the class now and how we will finish. Um, I actually think this is still going to be a really, really good class. And, and if not, if it doesn't pass the 21 class and points on paper in the team rankings, then whatever. It will be very close, even if it doesn't quite make it. You know, to me, I think the bigger thing is it's deeper. I, I think the 21 class was pretty top heavy, even on paper. Um, also was positionally strong at some spots and not as strong at other spots um, where I think this class really is very well balanced positionally, right? It's hard to look down the, the 2024 class and find really anywhere where it feels like um, the team didn't land quality, quality talent at, at any position group. So I think, I think uh, I think it's really strong in that regard. So even if it doesn't pass the 21 class from a point standpoint, I think the actual impact of these players will far surpass the impact of the 2021 class. And and quite frankly, there's still a chance that the class um, you know could end up being could end up being better than, than 2021. I mean, I think it'll take you know hitting on guys like Breland and Baker and and maybe getting another you know highly touted flip or or late commitment later in the cycle but it's not out of the realm of possibility and, and regardless it's going to be a top 10 level class you know whether it's 7 or 8 or 11 it's all going to be in that range uh, and i think most importantly i think it's deeper and more positionally balanced than probably any class that Oregon's had in in recent memory uh mark Asks, what is your most overrated, underrated 2023 offseason topic amongst college football fans? <laughs> uh, well, the most overrated topic has to be, oh no, Oregon is replacing four offensive linemen this year. Uh, that, as if you follow me on Twitter, you've seen me rage against that one time and time and time again. So I'll put that in the the overrated category. Um, Dion obviously is another one. Um, non-stop talk, it, it overrated in the sense that the what they what Colorado does on the field this year is not going to match the hype or even come close to it. Um, but it's also I understand why people have been talking about it. Um, underrated topic. Um, that is a tougher question. What is the most underrated 2023 offseason topic? Probably how more wide open 
the path to a national title is this season than it's probably been since, I don't know, the last three, four, five years at least. I, I mean, it felt like maybe 2019 was was a bit wide open. I mean, obviously it didn't turn out that way because LSU was a juggernaut, but at the beginning of the season, it was a little bit wide open. Feels like the last few years haven't been as wide open, but with, with Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, to a lesser extent Michigan, all having quarterback questions, um, you know, Clemson's kind of out there. What's the, what are they going to be like on offense? Can they turn the corner there? Is LSU for real? Um, you know, is Michigan for real? Can they take that next step? Where does Penn State sit? Is USC have a defense? Like it does, it definitely feels like, I mean, it's not like 20 teams wide open, but it definitely feels like if there's ever a year where a second tier recruiting team like, uh, you know, who's, who doesn't have the talent on paper as a Georgia or an Ohio State or Alabama has, can sneak in and actually win a, a title. It's probably this one. It's still a 14 playoffs. You only need to win two of those games. And with those quarterback questions at those powerhouse schools, it's a year where definitely an LSU could make another run. It's a year where a USC or an Oregon, you know, I mean, that's kind of crazy to say, but a team like that, you know, who's got talent, um, got enough talent to compete with some of those teams and maybe has, you know, the, the quarterback the, that can kind of light up, light it up in those two games and, and, and propel you to a national title. It's a year where that could happen. A Penn state obviously is another example there. So I think that's probably the most underrated topic it's being talked about, but it's not being widely talked about enough. I don't think. Uh, Tyler Jones asks, this is the last question. Tyler Jones asks, what questions are we waiting to be answered to know if this is the best Oregon team to date? Of course, assuming without any major injuries. And why does this Oregon team have a good as chance as any to win the national championship? Well, I think I just answered the second question to a degree, right? Like, you know, all those quarterback questions at the most important position at those at those big time schools are why the national championship window is wider open this year than it is you know, probably certainly over the last several years. Um, and, and as far as the questions to be answered, I, I, it's defense. It comes down to defense. I mean, maybe, you'd, you know, you'd say, okay, the O-line has to prove that they're nearly as good as last year's fine, fair. Um, but other than that, it, you know, maybe you'd say, you know, can Stein be as good as Dillingham? Fine, fair. Those are not questions I personally think are, are really that big of a question. Um, but it's fine if other people agree with that. But outside of that, I think it all goes back to the defense. You know, if Oregon's going to make the playoffs, let alone win any games there, they're going to need a significant improvement on defense. And that comes particularly at rushing the passer, at linebacker play, both in the run game and pass game, and at safety play. If they can see significant improvement in those three areas on defense, then this team could, could definitely take a jump and, and a very special season. And perhaps, you know, perhaps a season that is even the best Oregon team to date could, could be on the horizon, but I mean, it's no sure thing, but it's definitely the ingredients are all there. The ingredients are all there. All right, Tyler, thank you for that one. And thank you all for listening. I know this has been a long episode. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Kelly Ford as much as I did. QB and I will be back on Monday previewing week one, 
talking about our Pac-12 predictions for the full record of every team in the conference. And uh, we're just really getting ready for football to be back. So we will talk to you soon.